Simon and Schuster Audio presents Eight Rules of Love How to Find It, Keep It, and Let It Go by Jay Shetty Read by the author To my mom for teaching me how to love endlessly. To my sister for teaching me how to love unconditionally. To my wife for teaching me how to love actually. Introduction What is the difference between like and love? asks a student. The teacher responds, When you like a flower, you pluck it. When you love a flower, you water it daily. This frequently cited dialogue illustrates one of my favorite ideas about love. We are attracted to beauty. We long for it and want it for our own. This is the flower that we pluck and enjoy. But attraction, like a cut flower, eventually withers and we discard it. When attraction develops into love, it requires more care. When we want to keep a flower alive, we don't cut it and put it in a vase. We give it sunlight, soil, and water. And it's only when you care for a flower over time, doing your best to keep it alive, that you fully experience its beauty. The freshness, the color, the scent, the bloom. You notice the delicate detail on each petal. You watch it respond to the seasons. You find joy and satisfaction when a new bud appears and feel a thrill when it blossoms. We are drawn to love as we're drawn to a flower, first by its beauty and allure, but the only way we can keep it alive is through consistent care and attention. Love is a daily effort. I want to develop the habit of love with you in this book. I'll introduce you to practices, mindsets, and tools that will help you love in a way that brings daily rewards season after season. It has been said that the greatest pursuit of human life is to love and to be loved. We believe in love. It's in our nature to be drawn to love stories, to long for one of our own, and to hope that true love is possible. But many of us also know what it feels like to be a flower that's been cut and stuck in water only to wilt and lose our bloom. Maybe you felt that way, or maybe you've cut and discarded a few flowers in your time, or maybe you haven't found love yet and are still looking. These disappointments might come in different forms, believing you were in love, then feeling misled, thinking it was love, only to find it was lust, being certain it was love, but discovering it was a lie, expecting love to last, but watching it fade. Maybe we fear commitment, or choose people who do, or set our standards too high and don't give people a chance. Maybe an ex is still on our minds, or maybe we've just had a run of bad luck. Instead of falling for false promises or unfulfilling partners, instead of feeling defeated or hopeless, instead of getting your heart broken, I want you to experience the expansive love that you hope exists. 
Romantic love is at once familiar and complex. It has been seen and described in infinite ways across time and cultures. Psychologist Tim Lomas, a lecturer in the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard University, analyzed 50 languages and identified 14 unique kinds of love. The ancient Greeks said there were seven basic types: eros, which is sexual or passionate love, philia or friendship, storge or familial love, agape, which is universal love, ludus, which is casual or non-committal love, pragma, which is based on duty or other interests, and philotia, which is self-love. An analysis of Chinese literature from 500 to 3000 years old reveals many forms of love, from passionate and obsessive love to devoted love to casual love. In the Tamil language, there are more than 50 words for various kinds and nuances of love, such as love as grace, love within a fulfilling relationship, and a melting inside due to a feeling of love. In Japanese, the term koi no yokan describes the sensation of meeting someone new and feeling that you're destined to fall in love with them. And kokuhaku describes a declaration of loving commitment. In India's Boro language, ansra describes the knowledge that a relationship will fade. Our own culture describes love in numerous ways. If we look at the Billboard Top 50 love songs of all time, we are told that love is a second-hand emotion. Tina Turner. Love is a roller coaster. Ohio Players. Love is a hangover. Diana Ross. Love is a crazy little thing. Queen. Love's got Beyoncé looking so crazy right now, and Leona Lewis keeps bleeding love. Movies idealize love. but we rarely find out what happens after happily ever after with so many perspectives and portraits and parables of love surrounding us every day i want this book to help you create your own definition of love and develop the skills to practice and enjoy that love every day when i was 21 years old I skipped my college graduation to join an ashram in a village near Mumbai. I spent 3 years there as a Hindu monk, meditating, studying ancient scriptures, and volunteering alongside my fellow monks. The oldest Hindu scriptures we studied are called the Vedas. They were written on palm leaves in Sanskrit more than 5000 years ago. Most of the palm leaves no longer exist, but the texts have survived. Some of them are even online. Their presence and relevance in the modern world always amaze and inspire me. I've been studying the Vedas for 16 years now, and for the 3 years I lived as a monk, I studied them deeply. When I saw the practical and accessible wisdom hidden within them, I started sharing these messages and insights with people around the world through podcasts, books, and videos. A big part of my work today is coaching individuals and couples and training others to do the same. This work has allowed me to certify more than 2000 coaches, all of whom use a curriculum I developed that is rooted in Vedic principles. I've used wisdom from the Vedas to form the concepts in this book. 
I turn to the Vedas because these ancient scribes speak of love in ways I hadn't heard before. What they say is simple and accessible, an old lens that offers a new perspective. The Vedas introduced me to the fundamental ideas that love has stages, that love is a process, and that we all desire to love and be loved. As I worked with individuals and couples on their relationships and transitions into and out of love, I saw that the validity of these concepts stands the test of real-life settings. Then, in comments on my videos and responses to my podcast, I saw and heard people struggling with the same recurring patterns in their relationships, many of them issues that I had successfully addressed with my clients using Vedic concepts. I wrote this book so that anyone can access these concepts and discuss them with friends, family and partners. I drew from the guidance of the Vedas, from what has worked with my clients, from my own travels and from what I learned with my fellow monks. I love the intersection of modern science and ancient wisdom. The ideas here are supported by both, though we are repurposing Vedic concepts in ways they haven't been used before, applying spiritual concepts to earthly relationships. The Practice of Love Nobody sits us down and teaches us how to love. Love is all around us, but it can be hard to learn from friends and family who themselves are just winging it. Some are looking for love, some are giddy in love and full of hope, some might be ghosting each other or leading each other on. Some are together but not in love, some are breaking up because they just can't figure out how to make it work, and some seem content in their loving relationships. Everyone's got advice for us. Love is all you need. When you meet your soulmate, you'll know. You can change them. Relationships should feel easy. Opposites attract. But it's hard to know what advice to follow and where to start. We can't expect to get love right when we've never been educated on how to give or receive it. How to manage our emotions in connection to someone else's. How to understand others. How to build and nurture a relationship where both people thrive. Most of the advice on love is caught up in how to find Mr. or Mrs. Right. We think there's a perfect person out there for us, a soulmate, the one, and dating apps reinforce that belief. That's wonderful when it happens, but it doesn't happen to everyone and it doesn't always stay so perfect. This book is different because it's not about finding the perfect person or relationship and leaving the rest to chance. I want to help you intentionally build love instead of wishing, wanting and waiting for it to arrive fully formed. I want to help you deal with the challenges and imperfections we encounter on the journey to love. I want you to create a love that grows every day, expanding and evolving rather than achieved and complete. We can't know where and when we'll find love, but we can prepare for it and practice what we've learned when we find it. The Vedas describe four stages of life, and these are the classrooms in which we'll learn the rules of love so that we can recognize and make the most of it when it comes our way. Instead of presenting love as an ethereal concept, they describe it as a series of steps 
stages and experiences that chart a clear path forward. After we learn the lessons of one level, we move to the next. If we struggle or move on from a stage before we've completed it, we simply return to the lesson we need. Life pushes us back in the direction of this work. The four classrooms are Brahmacharya Ashram, Grahastha Ashram, Vanaprast Ashram, and Sanyas Ashram. If you look up ashram in a dictionary, you'll find that it means hermitage. The meanings of Sanskrit words often get stripped down in their English definitions, but in practice, they have more depth. I define ashram as a school of learning, growth and support, a sanctuary for self-development, somewhat like the ashram in which I spent my years as a monk. We are meant to be learning at every stage of life. Think about life as a series of classrooms or ashrams in which we learn various lessons. Each ashram brings us to a different level of love. The first ashram, preparing for love. In the first ashram, brahmacharya, we prepare for love. We don't get in a car and start to drive without studying for a learner's permit and practicing the core skills in a safe space. When we take a new job, we might prepare by learning a new computer program, talking to people we'll be working with about what might be expected of us, or reviewing whatever skills we might need. And we prepare for love by learning how to love ourselves in solitude. Alone, we learn to understand ourselves, to heal our own pain, and to care for ourselves. We acquire skills like compassion, empathy, and patience. Rule 1. This prepares us to share love because we'll need these qualities when we love someone else. We will also examine our past relationships to avoid making the same mistakes in relationships going forward. Rule 2. The second ashram, practicing love. The second ashram, grahastha, is when we extend our love to others while still loving ourselves. The three chapters in this stage explain how to understand, appreciate and cooperate with another mind, another set of values and preferences. We tend to oversimplify love, thinking of it as just chemistry and compatibility. Romance and attraction are indeed the initial connection points, but I define the deepest love as when you like someone's personality, respect their values and help them toward their goals in a long-term, committed relationship. You may feel this way about your friends, and I hope you do, but I'm talking about maintaining these qualities when you live with someone, see them every single day, and are at their side for their greatest joys, biggest disappointments, and all the mundanity and intensity of daily life. In Grihasta, we will examine how to know if you're in love. Rule 3. How to learn and grow with your partner. Rule 4. And how to set priorities and manage personal time and space within your relationship. Rule 5. The third ashram. Protecting love. Vanaprastha, the third ashram, is a healing place where we retreat to seek peace. We find ourselves here either after a breakup, a loss, 
or when family life has downshifted to require less of our attention. After learning to give love to others in Grihastha and giving so much, this is an interlude where we reflect on the experience of loving others, discover what might block our ability to love, and work on forgiveness and healing. In Vanaprastha, we learn how to resolve conflict so we can protect our love. Rule 6 We also protect ourselves and our ability to love by learning when to break up and how to deal with it if we do. Rule 7 The fourth ashram, perfecting love. The fourth ashram, sannyas, is the epitome of love when we're extending our love to every person and every moment of our life. In this stage, our love becomes boundless. We realize we can experience love at any time with anyone. We learn how to love again and again. Rule 8 We strive for this perfection, but we never achieve it. Many of us pass through these four ashrams without learning the lessons they present. In the first ashram, we resist being alone and miss out on the growth that solitude offers. In the second, we avoid lessons that come from the challenges that accompany any relationship. In the third, we don't take responsibility for our healing. And the fourth, loving everyone, is something we never even consider because we have no idea it's possible. This book follows the order of these ashrams which essentially follow the cycle of relationships, from preparing for love, to practicing love, to protecting love, to perfecting love. Thinking about these four ashrams, I narrowed them down to the eight rules we need to learn and qualities we need to develop to move from one ashram to the next. Two rules to prepare for love, three rules to practice love, two rules to protect love, and one rule to strive toward perfect love. Eight timeless universal rules. These rules are cumulative. They build on one another. I intend for you to approach them in this order, but they're meant to serve us at any age and stage of a relationship. Some of them are counterintuitive. I talk about solitude as the beginning of love. I tell you that you must put your purpose before your partner's. I explain that your partner is your guru. These are new approaches to love that will guide you in how to improve your chances at finding love, what to look for on your first date, what to do if you have a type, how to present yourself, when to say I love you, when to make a commitment, how to handle conflict, how to manage a household and when to call it quits. Each of these rules helps you develop a mindset for love, whether you're single, in a relationship, or breaking up. You can practice solitude in a relationship. You can reframe your approach to conflict no matter what your situation. These rules come into play in all life scenarios. This book isn't a collection of manipulative techniques. I won't give you pickup lines to grab people's attention. I won't tell you how to make yourself into the person they want you to be or how to make them into who you want them to be. This is about embracing your preferences and proclivities, 
so you don't waste time on people who aren't good for you. It's about learning how to display your values, not how to advertise yourself. It's about letting go of any anger, greed, ego, self-doubt and confusion that clouds your heart and interferes with your ability to love. Along the way, I will give you techniques to help you work through loneliness, let go of expectations, nurture intimacy and heal from heartbreak. When I decided to ask Radhi to marry me, I set out to arrange the best, most romantic proposal of all time. I asked a friend about engagement rings and bought her a classic diamond ring. Then, on a beautiful spring evening in 2014, I suggested to her that we meet near London Bridge to take a walk down the bank of the Thames. We were living in London at the time. I told her we were going to a nice place for dinner, knowing she would dress appropriately for the night I had planned. Just as we passed an idyllic spot with one of the best views in the city, a man suddenly appeared and gave her a huge bouquet. As she was marveling over the flowers, an a cappella group burst out of nowhere and joined the bouquet-bearing man to sing the Bruno Mars song, Marry You. I got down on one knee and proposed to her. She cried. I cried too. After she said yes, a vegan meal was delivered and we sat down to eat at a table I'd set up on the bank of the Thames. She thought that was the end of the fanfare and we got up to head home. But as we rounded the corner, there was a white horse-drawn carriage. We climbed aboard and it carried us through the city passing all the major sites. She was shouting out, I'm engaged, and passers-by cheered for us. Finally, we went to share our good news with her parents. But on the way there, red spots appeared all over Radhi's face. By the time we arrived at her parents, she was covered in hives, and their first words to us weren't congratulations, but what's wrong with your face? That was the day we discovered she's allergic to horses. I thought I had choreographed the perfect proposal, but as time passed, it occurred to me that all my ideas had come straight from Disney movies and viral proposal videos. Does Radhi actually enjoy a cappella music? Sure, but she isn't into grand gestures. Does she have an attachment to the Thames or riding through London? Not really. Clearly, being near horses and covered in hives isn't her dream date. And it turns out, diamonds aren't her gemstone of choice. What does Radhi really care about? She loves food, and while I'd arranged for a vegan restaurant to deliver food to us at the river, it arrived cold and bland. The one detail she would have appreciated the most was the one I planned the least, and its execution was the worst. Also, Radhi adores her family, and if I'd been considering that, I might have planned for them to jump out of the bushes to surprise us instead of the singers. She would have loved that. We had fun and I lucked out. Radhi said yes and never complained about any of it. But my proposal wasn't particularly personal. Throughout my life, I'd seen love presented through over-the-top romantic gestures, 
and I thought that was the only way to show how I felt. The hives were a gentle hint that I didn't know what I was doing, that I should think about the person standing in front of me instead of the images of fairy tale love that constantly bombard us. For my whole life, I'd been surrounded by stories that told me how love should play out. We all are, and most of us unconsciously gravitate, in love and all things, to a conventional path. In heterosexual relationships, men still do most of the proposing. On the wedding site The Knot, 97% of proposal stories are of grooms-to-be popping the question. 80% of brides receive a diamond engagement ring. According to a survey in Brides magazine, more than 80% of brides wear white and 76% of women take their husband's last name. The nuclear family is still the most common family structure in the US, with only one in five Americans living in a household with two or more adult generations under one roof, roughly the same percentage as in 1950. 72% of Americans live in or near the city where they grew up. And even though the number of people who say they'd like a non-exclusive partnership has risen, only about 4-5% of Americans are actually in a consensual, non-monogamous relationship. The storybook version of love I displayed for Radhi wasn't the love that would sustain our relationship. Fairy tales, films, songs and myths don't tell us how to practice love every day. That requires learning what love means for the two of us as individuals and unlearning what we thought it meant. That's why I'm sharing my imperfect story. I don't know everything and I don't have everything figured out. Radhi has taught me so much about love and I continue to learn with her. I'm sharing all this book's advice with you knowing how much I could have used it myself and will use it in the future. Love is not about staging the perfect proposal or creating a perfect relationship. It's about learning to navigate the imperfections that are intrinsic to ourselves, our partners and life itself. I hope this book helps you do just that. Part 1. Solitude. Learning to love yourself. In the first ashram, Brahmacharya, we prepare for love by learning how to be alone and learning from our past relationships how to improve our next one. Alone, we learn to love ourselves, to understand ourselves, to heal our own pain and to care for ourselves. We experience Atma Prem, self-love. Rule 1. Let yourself be alone. I wish I could show you, when you are lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. Hafiz We can all agree that no one wants to be lonely. In fact, many people would rather stay in an unhappy relationship than be single. If you type the phrase, Will I ever, into a search engine, it predicts that the next words you will enter are find love. 
Because will I ever find love is the most popular question people ask about their futures. This question reveals our insecurity, our fear, our anxiety around loneliness. And these very feelings prevent us from finding love. Researchers at the University of Toronto found through a series of studies that when we're afraid of being single, we're more likely to settle for less satisfying relationships. Specifically, we're more likely to become dependent on our partners and less likely to break up with them even when the relationship doesn't meet our needs. Being in a relationship seems like the obvious cure for loneliness. Aren't we lonely because we're alone? But the fear of loneliness interferes with our ability to make good decisions about relationships. My client Leo had been dating Isla for nearly a year when her job took her from Philadelphia to Austin. You should do what's best for you, she told him. I want to be clear. I'm not sure where our relationship is going. He was unsure at first, but a month after she left, he moved to Austin. Most of my friends were in relationships. I basically felt single without Isla and I didn't want to be lonely, so I decided to join her. Instead of thinking about the pros and cons of moving, what were his job prospects? What was he leaving behind in Philadelphia? Who did he know in Austin? Did he like it there? Would this step benefit his relationship? Leo was primarily focused on avoiding loneliness. A month after he moved, Isla ended the relationship. Leo moved in order to avoid loneliness, but he ended up working remotely from a town where he knew nobody and found himself lonelier than ever. Do we want to choose or stay in a relationship based on insecurity and desperation or based on contentment and joy? Loneliness makes us rush into relationships. It keeps us in the wrong relationships and it urges us to accept less than we deserve. We must use the time when we are single or take time alone when we're in a couple to understand ourselves, our pleasures and our values. When we learn to love ourselves, we develop compassion, empathy and patience. Then we can use those qualities to love someone else. In this way, being alone, not lonely, but comfortable and confident in situations where we make our own choices, follow our own lead and reflect on our own experience is the first step in preparing ourselves to love others. Fear of loneliness. It's no wonder we dread being alone. All our lives we've been primed to fear it. The kid who played by themselves in the playground, they were called a loner. The one who had a birthday party when the cool kids didn't show up, they felt unpopular. Not being able to find a plus one for the wedding makes us feel like losers. The terrifying prospect of having to sit alone during lunch is such a common theme in high school movies that Steven Glassberg, a throwaway cameo in Superbad, has made it into the urban dictionary as that kid who sits alone at lunch every day eating his dessert. It was drummed into us that we had to have a prom date to fill our yearbooks with signatures, 
to be surrounded by a squad of friends. Being alone meant being lonely. Loneliness has been cast as the enemy of joy, growth and love. We imagine ourselves stranded on an island, lost, confused and helpless, like Tom Hanks in Castaway, with nobody but a volleyball named Wilson to talk to. Loneliness is the last resort, a place no one wants to visit, let alone live. When I spent three years as a monk, I spent more time alone than in the rest of my life put together. Though there were many monks at the ashram, much of our time was spent in silence and solitude and we certainly didn't have romantic relationships. The emotional isolation allowed me to develop and practice skills that are harder to access among the pleasures and pressures of a relationship. For instance, the first time I went on a meditation retreat, I was appalled when I saw that I wasn't supposed to bring my MP3 player. Music was my life then, and I couldn't imagine what I would do during breaks if I couldn't listen. But on that retreat, I discovered that I loved silence. I found that I didn't need anything to entertain myself. I wasn't distracted by conversation, flirtation, or expectations. There was no music or device to fiddle with to fill my mind. And I was the most engaged and present that I'd ever been. If you haven't learned the lessons of an ashram, life will keep pushing you back to that phase of life in one way or another. Many of the key lessons of Brahmacharya are learned in solitude. Let's begin by assessing how much time you spend alone and how it makes you feel. This baseline audit is important whether you're in a relationship or not to see if you're using your time in solitude to understand yourself and ready yourself for love. Try this. Solo audit. First, spend one week keeping track of all the time you spend alone. This means without a companion. Don't spend the time with the TV on or scrolling mindlessly through your phone. I want you to track active solo pastimes, such as reading, walking, meditating, exercising, or pursuing an interest like cooking, going to museums, collecting, building, or creating. No, you can't count the time when you're asleep. For this part of the exercise, you don't have to go out of your way to be alone. At this point, we just want to observe what your habits are. Next to the time you spent alone, write down what you did and whether doing it without a companion bothered you. You might enjoy doing dishes alone or you might find it a painful reminder that you cooked for one. You might like to walk alone or it might make you feel lonely. Think about why you are comfortable or uncomfortable. When do you feel comfortable alone? The point of this exercise is to help you take stock of how you spend your solo time before we develop your practice of being alone. Now that you've assessed your baseline solitude, start doing one new activity alone every week. And I want you to deliberately choose how to spend that time. Pick an activity that you've rarely or never done by yourself before. See a movie, performance or sports event. Go to a museum. 
Make a reservation for dinner for one. Go to a restaurant without touching your phone. Go for a hike. Celebrate your birthday. Enjoy a major holiday. Go to a party on your own. Engage in a one-time volunteer opportunity. Take a masterclass. Try this every week for the next month. During the activity, pay attention to how you react to a new situation. Observe any intrusive thoughts that make it hard for you to be alone. Use these questions to reflect. How long does it take to feel comfortable? How different would it be if you were with another person? Are you better able to enjoy yourself alone? Do you wish there were another person here? Is it hard to know what to do with yourself? Would your opinion about the activity be influenced by a companion's reaction? Depending on the activity, are you tempted to distract yourself or engage your mind with your phone, the TV, or podcasts? What do you love about the experience? What are the pros and cons of being yourself? If you can't go to dinner on your own without feeling uncomfortable, what would it take to make it more comfortable? You might discover that you like to bring a book or work assignment with you because it makes you feel engaged or productive. Having a brief, friendly conversation with the waiter might be all you need to start your solo dinner on the right foot. If you see a movie on your own and miss sharing the experience with someone, Find a new way of expressing yourself to yourself. Write a blog post, an online review, or a journal entry about the movie. The same is true if you take a class. Did you learn from it? What did you like? What would you have changed? Record a voice note telling yourself how you felt about the experience. It's nice to exchange opinions with someone about a movie, class, or lecture, but when you attend by yourself. You practice developing your ideas and opinions without the influence of someone else's taste. If you're unaccustomed to hiking alone, set a fun, low-pressure goal for yourself. It might be a physical goal, like making your best time on the hike, or it might be to find something that captured your attention and bring it home with you. You might set out with the goal of taking a photo you love. That you can keep for yourself or post to social media. The purpose of the solo audit is to get more comfortable in your own skin. You're getting to know your preferences without leaning on someone else's priorities and goals. You're learning how to have a conversation with yourself. Solitude is the antidote to loneliness. Paul Tillich said. Language has created the word loneliness to express the pain of being alone, and it has created the word solitude to express the glory of being alone. The difference between loneliness and solitude is the lens through which we see our time alone and how we use that time. The lens of loneliness makes us insecure and prone to bad decisions. The lens of solitude makes us open and curious. As such, solitude is the foundation on which we build our love. Solitude is not a failure to love. 
it's the beginning of love. During the time we spend without a sidekick, we move through the world differently, more alert to ourselves and the world. In one study, researchers gave more than 500 visitors to an art museum a special glove that reported their movement patterns along with physiological data such as their heart rates. The data showed that when people were not distracted by chatting with companions, they actually had a stronger emotional response to the art. As the researchers wrote, those who were alone were able to enter the exhibition with all of their senses open and alert to a greater degree. The participants also filled out a survey before and after their visit. Ultimately, those who came to the exhibition with a group reported their experience as less thought-provoking and emotionally stimulating than those who went alone. Of course, there's nothing wrong with chatting and letting the art slide past. But think of the inspiration those museum visitors missed out on. Then, apply that to life in general. When we surround ourselves with other people, we're not just missing out on the finer details of an art exhibition. We're missing out on the chance to reflect and understand ourselves better. In fact, studies show that if we never allow ourselves solitude, it's just plain harder for us to learn. In Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi writes, our current research with talented teenagers shows that many fail to develop their skills not because they have cognitive deficits, but because they cannot stand being alone. His research found that young people were less likely to develop creative skills like playing an instrument or writing because the most effective practice of these abilities is often done while alone. Like those talented teenagers, when we avoid solitude, we struggle to develop our skills. The Path from Loneliness to Solitude By itself, solitude doesn't give us the skills we need for relationships. You can't just decide you're going to use solitude to understand yourself and make it so. But if we use it to get to know ourselves, there are many ways in which it prepares us for love. Remember, in a healthy relationship, you manage the intersection of two lives best if you know your own personality, values and goals already. So as we make our way out of loneliness and into a productive use of solitude, we will explore our personality, values and goals. There are three stages on the way from loneliness to solitude. Presence, discomfort and confidence. Presence The first step to making use of your solitude is being present with yourself. Even when we're not with other people, we're often busy, distracted and distanced from our own lives. When we pay attention to how we feel and what choices we're making, we learn what we prioritize in life, our values. Those values steer how we make decisions. Being present and seeing your values gives you a sense of who you are and you get to decide if that's the person you want to be. You spend more time with yourself than anyone else in your lifetime. 
take the time to appreciate your strengths and admit the areas where you need work. Then, when you enter a relationship with someone else, you'll already have a sense of what you're bringing to the table and where you could improve. We don't think about the importance of bringing self-knowledge to a relationship, but being self-aware means you can temper your weaknesses and play to your strengths. Try this. Get to know your values. Look at the choices you make in different areas of your life. Are they tied to your values or are they habits you might like to change? I'll give you some options to describe your attitude toward each element. But if none of them sound like they describe you, write down ones that do. The more specifically you know yourself, the more you can fine-tune what you love about yourself and improve the areas where you'd like to change. Time choices Social media I like documenting my life for my friends. Social media is not my thing. I like to be in the here and now. Weekends and travel I want to see the world. When I have free time, I just want or need to relax. Date night I like to stay home and cook. I love a night out on the town. TV I watch something every night. I curate my shows carefully and only stick with what I love. Punctuality I'm always on time. I'm often late. Planning I keep a calendar and stick to my plans. I don't like to be locked into commitments. Habits Organization I keep everything tidy, bills paid. I wish I were more organized than I am. Exercise I like to be active or do it for health. I find it hard to motivate. Food I eat healthily or do as best as I can. Life is short. I eat what tastes good. Sleep I like to sleep in if possible. I'm an early riser. Money Discretionary spending My focus is saving for the future. I spend it when I've got it. Vacations I enjoy extravagant trips. I travel on a budget. Home clothing car I keep it simple. I like the finer things. Purchases I buy things spontaneously. My purchases are carefully contemplated. Social interaction Friends I like spending time with lots of people. I prefer one-on-one -on -one time or to be alone. If it's the latter, you've come to the right rule. Family I see my family as often as I can. I only see my family when I have to. Conversation I like to discuss all kinds of topics in detail. I'm a person of few words. Once you know your values, you can make sure your partner respects them. If you don't respect each other's values, it's harder to understand each other's choices and decisions, which then can lead to confusion and conflict. If you don't have the same values, you don't have to fight about them or defend them. 
but you need to know your own so you can respect yourself and know theirs so you can respect them and vice versa. Discomfort If you're not in the habit of spending time by yourself, it may feel awkward and uncomfortable at first. It can be hard to be alone with your thoughts. You might feel like you're not achieving anything or you don't know what to do with yourself. You might feel like there's no obvious benefit to it. To get used to the feeling of being alone, we must challenge ourselves. First, in the small ways I described in the solo audit, but also in larger, more immersive ways. Try this. Make use of your time alone. What's something new you want to try out? Here are three different ways you can spend time alone and use it to get to know yourself better. Choose the option that most attracts you because part of this is learning your own preferences or come up with your own. 1. Commit to a new skill that will take weeks, months or longer to develop. Take the singing lessons you've always wanted. Learn to roller skate or join the quarantine throngs and finally learn how to bake sourdough. What drew you to this skill? What made you wait until now to pursue it? How does the new skill affect your confidence and self-worth? Does it fit with your image of who you are and who you want to be? It's okay to work with an instructor such as a music teacher if you take up a new instrument. The point is to create the opportunity to reflect in solitude on what the new activity teaches you about yourself. 2. Travel alone Learn about yourself as you plot out a weekend trip that you'll take alone. You'll learn very quickly how independent you are. This is a great activity to do especially if you're scared of being alone. Are you indecisive or decisive? Light packer or heavy packer? Mellow or active? Content or bored? Neat or messy, organized or spontaneous? Do you have conversations in your head or is your internal experience quiet? Are you decisive or do you question your choices? Do you feel self-conscious or confident? What aspects of travel most appeal to you? Where would you like to go next? 3. Take on a job you've never done before. This is hard to manage if you work full-time, but if you can swing it, try a new form of work. Volunteer at a library, sign up to drive for a rideshare service, wait tables, babysit, teach. To be clear, many of these options involve interacting with other people, but the point is that you choose it alone. You embark on it alone and you reflect on the experience alone. What aspects of yourself are consistent no matter what you do? What do you discover about yourself? Is this a job that you've been curious about or is it the extra money that matters most? Do you like to interact with people or to work independently? Do you prefer to be given clear instructions or to find your own way? Are you more likely to ask permission or forgiveness? 
Does work invigorate or exhaust you? Would you like to expand this new opportunity in your life? Knowing more about ourselves and what we enjoy helps us feel comfortable in solitude. We'll be more willing to spend time pursuing our interests without needing the safety net of a companion. The activities you choose and what you learn about yourself from those activities will expand your self-awareness and help you make the most out of the time you spend alone. Confidence. Once we're comfortable in solitude, we can work on our confidence. Oxford Languages Dictionary defines confidence as a feeling of self-assurance arising from one's appreciation of one's own abilities or qualities. Confidence is important in a relationship because it helps us talk to the person we like without seeking their approval or hinging our self-esteem on their reaction. When we aren't looking for them to validate our tastes and choices, we can appreciate their kind words without being misled or distracted by them. Sometimes a lack of confidence makes us think we're not lovable. You are lovable, I promise. But having me say it doesn't help you feel it. We build confidence by making time for the things that matter to us. If there are aspects of ourselves that we don't like, we should do something to change them. We have a choice. We can either change our mindset or change what we don't like. We need to get in the habit of assessing ourselves and making efforts to improve our own lives. When most people set goals, they do so around external achievements. They want to be financially free or to buy a home. But the goals we'll develop in this exercise center on growth, not achievement. Knowing our goals helps us prepare for love. Then, when they come up in conversation with a potential partner, you can explain why they're important to you. The other person might be supportive, dismissive, or neutral. If they don't take notice, you can flag it for them, saying, this is actually an important goal of mine, and here's why. You'll want a partner who respects not only your goals, but why they're your goals. In a relationship, remember that until you act on your goals, your partner won't know that they are truly important to you. Sometimes you have to start executing to have full buy-in. But in either case, if we don't know what our own goals are, we have no way of knowing how well they intersect with another person's. Try this. Identify your biggest growth area. Let's take a 360-degree view of your life looking at these five areas self, financial, mental-emotional, health, and relationships. Choose the answer that comes closest to defining your relationship with these areas of your life. When you've completed the questions, look at where you are and think about where you want to be. Which is the area where you most want to grow? 1. Personality A. I don't like myself B. I like myself when others like me C. I appreciate myself despite my flaws and work to improve myself. 
Are you okay with where you are? Or do you want to change? 2. Emotional health A. I often feel anxious and unsettled. B. I put aside my emotions to get stuff done. C. I understand my emotions and try to work through them. Are you okay with where you are? Or do you want to change? 3. Physical health A. I disregard my body or I don't like it. B. I actively work on my body because it's important to me to look good or better. C. I take care of myself and feel grateful to my body. Are you okay with where you are? Or do you want to change? 4. Relationships A. I'm insecure about some of my relationships. B. I rely on my relationships for joy. C. I invest in my relationships to help them grow. Are you okay with where you are? Or do you want to change? 5. Money A. Thinking about money makes me feel worried and anxious. B. Thinking about money makes me feel excited and ambitious. I envy people who have more money than I do. C. Thinking about money makes me feel content. If anything, I want more to give more. Are you okay with where you are? Or do you want to change? Say the biggest growth area you've identified is financial. You overspend and it's always been a problem. Taking action in this area is something to focus on when you spend time with yourself. I could write an entire book on developing and achieving your goals, but a good way to start is to develop a growth plan using the three C's of transformation. 1. Coaching We live in a world where experts and information are easily accessible online. Start by looking for widely available resources to help you with this issue. Find a book, podcast, course, friend, professional, TED Talk, Masterclass, or online video to help you. You'll find that most of these resources will help you break your goal into achievable smaller steps, bringing a challenge that once seemed insurmountable into focus. 2. Consistency Use the information you've gathered to make a plan for how to address the issue in an ongoing way. Set a goal for the year's end. This goal should be tied to action items, not an achievement. That is, your goal shouldn't be make a million dollars. It should be committing to ongoing efforts that will help you grow in this area. 3. Community Look for a community that might help support your efforts. There are online and local support groups for everything under the sun. Find one where there is a mix of people who are in the same position you're in. People who are in the process of making changes and people who have some measure of success in transforming their lives in the way that you wish to. Decide whether you prefer a community that is motivational, informational or a mix of the two. Who knows, you might meet your future partner there. Research shows that not only does high self-esteem 
create a more satisfying work life and better physical and psychological health, but it also predicts better and more satisfying romantic relationships. You may be wondering, couldn't it be the other way around? Wouldn't having a great relationship boost my self-esteem? It's plausible, but the research says otherwise. In fact, when people with high self-esteem had a relationship that went on the rocks, their self-esteem was unaffected. They did not view the level of happiness in their relationship as a direct reflection of their self-worth. The Rewards of Solitude Once you're spending productive time in solitude, you begin to know your own personality, values and goals. During this process, you develop qualities that prepare you for love at every stage of a relationship in several ways. One Mind We develop the ability to see and know ourselves without the influence of another mind. Frida Kahlo said, I paint self-portraits because I am so often alone. What is a self-portrait but a study of oneself? An attempt to visually portray self-awareness. Solitude allows us to understand our own complexity. We become students of ourselves. In her first apartment, my friend Mari and her roommate had an occasional problem with huge flying water bugs. I absolutely could not handle it, Mari confesses. Luckily, my roommate Ivan was a champion water bug slayer. If I came home to one, I just went out to get a drink and wait for Yvonne. But then Yvonne went away for the weekend, and on Friday, the first day of her solo weekend, Mari came home to find a water bug in her room, on her pillow. I called Yvonne in a panic. She told me to whack it, but I just couldn't. So I sat there and stared at the water bug for a long time. I thought about how unfair it was that I should hate it so much when I love butterflies. And then I opened the window and used a broom to gently usher it out into the world. This was a small moment with a small creature. But Mari learned something about herself that she never would have if she continued to let Yvonne handle the problem for her. When we're alone, we fully rely on ourselves figure out what we care about, and learn who we are. We learn to navigate challenges on our own. We can, of course, welcome help if it comes along, but we don't expect or depend on it. As those of you who read my first book, Think Like a Monk, may remember, one of the texts I refer to most frequently is the Bhagavad Gita. Part of the Mahabharat, which was written nearly 3,000 years ago, the Bhagavad Gita is a dialogue between a warrior, Arjun, and the god Krishna on the eve of a battle. This may not sound like it has much to offer modern humanity, but the Bhagavad Gita is the closest thing the Vedas have to a self-help book. In it, Krishna says, The senses are so strong and impetuous, O Arjun, that they forcibly carry away the mind even of a man of discrimination who is endeavoring to control them. In other words, 
If we're not careful, we can be attracted to something superficial or inauthentic. We have to train ourselves not to instantly like and trust the most attractive person in the room without remembering that we don't know this person or understand them. Solitude helps us master the senses, the mind, because in solitude we're only dealing with one mind, one set of thoughts. These days our senses are constantly overstimulated, not just by people but by all the unfiltered information that bombards us. Everything competes for our attention and amid the noise we have no chance to identify what's important. They say love is blind because when we are overwhelmed by sensory stimulation, we can't see clearly. The senses attract us to the newest, nicest, shiniest thing without giving us a chance to reflect before we make decisions. Our senses don't make the best decisions. The Bhagavad Gita says, as a strong wind sweeps away a boat on the water, even one of the roaming senses on which the mind focuses can carry away a man's intelligence. There's nothing wrong with attraction, but we're easily carried away by what looks appealing, feels good or sounds right. In solitude, we learn to create space between sensory stimulation and decision-making. If we're constantly looking for love or constantly focused on our partner, we'll be distracted from the vital work of understanding ourselves. If we don't understand ourselves, we risk taking on the tastes and values of our partner. Their vision becomes our vision. We might choose to sign on to someone's vision because we admire it. Someone might be a skilled cook whose tutelage we gratefully accept. But we don't want to mold ourselves to someone else simply because we don't know ourselves. I've had too many clients who don't realize until 20 years into a relationship that they've lost touch with themselves because they've outsourced who they are. We can integrate our partner's tastes with confidence and autonomy if we bring our own to the table. Through choices we make in solitude, we set our own standard for how we want to live and love and be loved. With the space to write our narrative from our own point of view, we gradually overcome the influence of movies, books, our parents or caregiver's model or a partner's wishes. We clarify our vision of love. Solitude helps you recognize that there is a you before, a you during and a you after every relationship, forging your own way even when you have company and love. Then, when our narrative intersects someone else's, we don't make choices based on infatuation or follow someone else's vision of love or passively let things play out without knowing what we want. Instead, we gradually express the standard we've developed to see how it fits with theirs. And when we're in solitude again, we reflect and evolve. Self-control and patience Two of the key skills we learn in solitude are self-control and patience. They're connected because the more we improve our self-control, 
the more patient we can be. Without these two skills, we become prone to following our senses and whatever attracts us. Self-control is the time and space you create between the moment when you're attracted to something and the moment you react to it. Buddhist teacher Rigjin Shikpo writes, Desire is something we project outward onto another person or object. We think it exists externally, within the object of our desire. But desire actually lies in our own body and mind, which is why we relate to it through the feelings it produces. When we can separate our own feeling of desire from the person we desire, we begin to feel less controlled by it and we can take a step back and evaluate it from a more detached and less urgent place. Instead of letting your senses lead the way, the gap that you create gives you the restraint to make sure the reaction is aligned with who you want to be. That ability to restrain yourself, to create the space, is enhanced by self-knowledge. Solitude gives us time and space between attraction and reaction. We ask ourselves, is this truly healthy for me? Will this nourish me? Is this good for me in the long term? We develop the self-control to pause and ask ourselves these questions and the patience to take our time answering them. We learn the difference between what feels good and what feels nourishing. Often, if something is healthy for us, it seems hard before, but great after. The clearest example of this is exercise, but it extends into more complex decisions like giving up a Saturday to help a friend move or breaking off a relationship that you know isn't working. And that which is unhealthy for us seems great before, but doesn't pan out well. Think about how great the idea of eating a big piece of chocolate cake seems before you do it. But ultimately, it's not good for you. The same is true for more consequential decisions. Like bringing a date to a wedding because you don't want to be alone, even though you know it will give them the wrong idea. A whole self. We've been trained to look for our better half or someone to complete us. Does that make us the worst half? Does it mean we're incomplete without a partner? Even if those phrases are said lightheartedly, they set us up for dependency on someone else that can never truly be fulfilled. We look to our partner essentially saying, I'm bored, entertain me. I'm tired, energize me. I'm angry, make me laugh. I'm frustrated, comfort me. I'm unhappy, cheer me up. We treat our partners like human Advil, looking to them for instant relief. We're not entirely wrong to expect this. Partners actually do co-regulate each other. Changes in your body prompt changes in their body and vice versa. Neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett writes, when you're with someone you care about, your breathing can synchronize as can the beating of your hearts. This connection starts when you're a baby. Your body learns to synchronize its own rhythms by first synchronizing to your caregiver's rhythms, 
and it continues into adulthood. But as Barrett points out, the best thing for your nervous system is another human. The worst thing for your nervous system is another human. Syncing with other people can log us into their bad vibes as well as their good ones. This is why we need to self-regulate, comforting ourselves, calming ourselves down, or pepping ourselves up. If we're always turning toward others to help us tune how we feel, we'll stay more like that infant who is incapable of self-soothing and self-supporting. When you're sad, if you're lucky, your partner will know how to make you feel better. People can and will help us, and that feels good, but it may not be what we need. If someone reassures us that everything will be okay, it's nice to hear and nice to have their love and support. But what we might really need is alone time to figure out how we can improve our situation. In solitude, we practice giving ourselves what we need before we expect it from someone else. Are you kind to yourself? Are you honest with yourself? Are you emotionally available to yourself? Are you supportive of your own efforts? You don't have to answer these questions right now. The more time you spend in solitude, the better you'll know how to answer them. People determine how to treat us in large part by observing how we treat ourselves. The way you speak about yourself affects how people will speak with you. The way you allow yourself to be spoken to reinforces what people think you deserve. A relationship with someone else won't cure your relationship with yourself. Therapy and friendships and a partner might help us understand and address the sources of our sadness, but many people still feel like their partner doesn't understand them. Our culture often encourages us to put the responsibility to unpack our feelings on someone else. We expect them to understand our emotions even if we don't. Other people can help you, but if you're not trying to understand yourself, nobody else can do it for you. We've all had the friend who says, you're right, you're right, you're right, but you can tell they're not going to take your advice. They need to do the work themselves. Hoping a partner will solve your problems is like trying to get someone to write your term paper for you. You need to take the class, learn the material, and write the paper yourself, or you won't have learned anything. You might think, great, where is this class that will teach me how to lead a meaningful life? Sign me up. But you're already taking the class. This is what solitude is for. When you come to a relationship as a whole person, without looking for someone to complete you or to be your better half, you can truly connect and love. You know how you like to spend your time, what's important to you, and how you'd like to grow. You have the self-control to wait for someone you can be happy with and the patience to appreciate someone you're already with. You realize that you can bring value to someone else's life. With this foundation, you're ready to give love without neediness or fear. Of course, relationships do heal us through connection. 
but you are giving yourself a head start by making the most of the time you spend in solitude. You want to go on a journey with someone, not to make them your journey. This stage of life is designed to help us learn how to love ourselves. But if you don't learn the lessons of the first ashram of love, then you won't know how lovable you are and what you have to offer. This is an everyday practice of preparing ourselves to be in a relationship while staying true to who we are. It is one of the hardest rules in this book and the most important. Any step toward knowing yourself in solitude will help you love others because in addition to knowing what you bring to the table, the very process of learning to understand and love yourself helps you understand the effort required to love someone else. The work it took to understand ourselves teaches us that even when we're with someone we care about, it will still be hard to understand them. Perhaps the most important lesson solitude offers is helping us understand our own imperfection. This prepares us to love someone else in all their beauty and imperfection. Rule 2. Don't ignore your karma. Do not be led by others. Awaken your own mind. Amass your own experience and decide for yourself your own path. Atharva Veda When Johnny and Emmett met at an industry retreat, Emmett sensed an instant connection. It felt like the most natural thing in the world he said. After a few dates, we were spending every weekend together. He told me he loved me. But after three months together, Johnny broke up with him. This is the third time someone has told me he can't give me what I want. But all I want is a serious relationship. I just have bad relationship karma, Emmett told me. He was right in a sense, but karma doesn't mean what Emmett or most people think. Karma is the law of cause and effect. Every action produces a reaction. In other words, your current decisions, good and bad, determine your future experience. People think karma means that if you do something bad, bad things will happen to you. Like someone breaks up with you because you broke up with someone else. But that's not how it works. Karma is more about the mindset in which we make a decision. If we make a choice or take action with or without proper understanding, we receive a reaction based on that choice. If you hide that you're going to a party from your partner and then you run into their best friend at the party and that person tells your partner they saw you and your partner is upset, that's karma in action. You made a choice and you have to live with the consequences of that choice. Punishment and reward are not karma's purpose. Rather, karma is trying to teach you. In this case, transparency and honesty. I don't want you to attribute every good or bad thing in your life or the world to 
to karma. That's not productive. Karma is more useful as a tool than as an explanation. It enables you to use your past experiences to make the best choices now. The Karma Cycle Karma begins with an impression. From the time we are born, choices are made for us. We are surrounded by information and experiences that shape us, our environment, our parents, our friends, our schooling and religious instruction. We don't pick these influences, but we observe and absorb their messages. Samskara is the Sanskrit word for impression, and when we are young, we collect samskaras. The impressions that we carry from these experiences influence our thinking, behaviors, and responses. As an impression grows stronger, it starts to shape our decisions. If you grew up putting milk in your cereal bowl, then adding the cereal, that becomes your norm. Then you move out and get a roommate who tells you you're doing it wrong, that it makes much more sense to put the cereal in before you add the milk. Now you have a choice. Will you stick with the impression that you absorbed as a child, or will you try a new way? As we get older, we gain the intelligence to curate our impressions by choosing what we watch and who we listen to. We also have the opportunity to revisit, edit and unlearn past impressions. In youth, choices are made for you. These become impressions. As an adult, you use these impressions to make your own choices. Those choices generate an effect, a consequence or a reaction. If you're happy with the consequence, you probably won't change your impression. But if you don't like the consequence, you can revisit the impression and decide whether it steered you wrong. If it did, you can break the cycle by forming a new impression which then steers you to a new choice from which you get a new reaction. This is the cycle of karma. We are meant to learn from our karma to use it to inform our decision-making, but that isn't easy. Life is busy and we think that what we learned is just the way things are. But when it comes to love and cereal, awesome scars can lead us astray. Karma and Relationships I had a client whose ex-boyfriend left an impression on her. He was extremely ambitious, trying to get a foothold in a new career. She liked his drive but was unhappy that he was never available. Then she met a man who was extremely attentive. At the end of their first date, he asked her out again and from then on he couldn't have been more available, texting her, making plans and checking in to see how her days were going. This was exactly what she'd been looking for. Within a few weeks, they started spending almost all their time together. But after a few months, she realized what was really going on. He wasn't just attentive, he was obsessive. The attention he was giving her was based on insecurity, not love. He was possessive and scared that she would leave him. My client had made a choice based on an impression, but her focus was too narrow. Her karma taught her that her impression was too reactive. 
She didn't need or want to be someone's entire focus. She just wanted him to be present when he was with her. In the course of these two relationships, my client used her karma to refine what she was looking for in a mate. The impressions we form in our youth tell us what love should look like and feel like. They suggest what's attractive and what's dorky, how we should treat others and be treated, what profession they should have and who should pay for dinner. But if we don't understand how our impressions were formed and how we make choices, then we keep repeating the same karma. The same impressions lead to the same choices. We love others in response to the way we've been loved by others. But if we can put our impressions in context so we see and understand their origins, then we have the perspective and opportunity to form a new impression. For instance, if I understand that I guilt-trip my partner because my mother guilt-tripped me, then that recognition inspires me to break the cycle. Understanding our impressions is the first step to freeing ourselves from the samskaras planted by a childhood over which we had no control. The choices that we make based on our new impression are conscious. We can see if we like the results better. If our parents had a volatile, passionate relationship, we might form an impression that this is what love is supposed to look like. But if, and sometimes we realize this when we're young, we are quite clear that we don't like the outcome of that volatility, then we create a new impression and decide that the love we seek is exactly not what our parents modeled. Then we might make it a priority to avoid drama. This new impression may create its own challenges. We may play it too safe, or we may be so focused on what we don't want that we forget to think about what we do want. But we have opened our minds and freed ourselves from our first samskara. And now we have the opportunity to create new impressions through trial and error. Karma is a mirror showing us where our choices have led us. We pick the wrong people and repeat mistakes in relationships because of the samskaras we bring with us from the past. Instead of unconsciously allowing the past to guide us, I want us to learn from our past to make decisions. We need to identify these samskaras in order to manage their influence. We do this for two reasons. First, when we learn from the past, we heal it. And second, this process helps us stop making the same mistakes. Unearthing our samskaras Our expectations and desires around relationships are shaped by our earliest experiences of love. Think about where you first absorbed ideas of what love should look and feel like. The strongest influences are most likely the love you witnessed between your parents or guardians, the love you did and didn't receive from them, the first romance movies you watched, and the first serious relationships you had. In our search for love, we subconsciously try to repeat or repair our past experiences. We imitate or reject, but we often give these early influences undue weight 
They affect our choices for better and worse. They interfere with our judgment more than we realize. Let's begin with the visualization. We're trying to let go of who we are and to reconnect with the subconscious part of ourselves. And visualization is the best way I know to travel to another time and place. Try this. Younger Self Meditation Try to unearth the impressions left by your past and understand how they're influencing your idea of love. This isn't about finding fault in others or putting them on a pedestal. It's simply about isolating the emotional patterns that influenced you in your early years. You can think of this meditation as an archaeological dig. There are artifacts to be found, some buried treasures, some half-exposed, some worthless. They show the richness and damage of years past and have much to teach us about life. Tap into unresolved, unfulfilled desires by visiting yourself at age 13 or 14. Give your younger self all the words, wisdom, and hugs they need. Embrace your younger self. What did your younger self need to hear that you were never told? You're beautiful. You're courageous. Believe in yourself. You'll be okay. You're not stupid. What would your younger self say in response? Thank you for coming back to tell me this. Don't be so stressed. You should take up singing again. After you have had this conversation with your younger self, give that version of you an embrace and thank them for this insight. When I guide people through this meditation, most of them find that they had some sort of insecurity in their youth and that child is still within them, still struggling with that self-doubt. However, one man told me after the meditation that his younger self looked at him and said, Come on, man, get over it. Just pick yourself up and move on. It felt to me like his younger self was saying, Tough it out. We're strong. We can handle anything. His ego was protecting his vulnerability. Even if we feel there's nothing to heal, Sometimes the wounds are so deep, we can't see them anymore. We take a stoic approach. We tell ourselves we're fine, but we don't recognize that we must take stock. Cut to a year later, when this man messaged me out of the blue to say, I realize I need to become more compassionate with the people I love and myself. It's just not how I'm wired. 
I don't feel like I have time to dwell on other people's thoughts and emotions. I answered, You don't take the time to dwell on your own emotions. It had taken him a year, but he was finally ready. The Younger Self Meditation helps us identify the gifts and the gaps that have clung to us since childhood. But this is only the first step toward letting go of bad impressions and taking control of the choices we make in relationships. To go deeper, we'll examine three influences on our samskaras, our parents, the media, and our first experiences of love. Parental Gifts and Gaps In the New York Times Modern Love column, writer Coco Mellers describes falling for a neighbor who makes it clear to her that he doesn't want to be in a relationship. She knows she is lying to him when she says she doesn't want anything serious either and admits that, though I didn't know it at the time, I was repeating a familiar pattern. I grew up chasing my father's love, a man who, like my neighbor, could be affectionate or absent depending on the day. Mata Pita Guru Devam is a Sanskrit phrase much repeated in Hinduism. It means mother, father, teacher, God. Your mother is your first guru. She teaches you about love. She teaches you about care, not through instruction, but through her interactions with you. And father is right there next to her, of course. It's a basic Freudian principle that the early relationships we have with our parents and caregivers establish relationship dynamics that, like Mellers, we're compelled to replicate as adults. When we're young, we completely rely on our parents and we figure out ways to attract their attention, to inspire their affection, and to feel their love. The love they give us shapes how we engage in love. Mata Pita Guru Devam is a simple concept with far-reaching implications. In their book, A General Theory of Love, Thomas Lewis, Fari Amini, and Richard Lannan, who were all professors of psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, write, We play out our unconscious knowledge in every unthinking move we make in the dance of loving. If a child has the right parents, he learns the right principles. That love means protection, caretaking, loyalty, sacrifice. He comes to know it not because he's told, but because his brain automatically narrows crowded confusion into a few regular prototypes. If he has emotionally unhealthy parents, a child unwittingly memorizes the lesson of their troubled relationship. That love is suffocation. That anger is terrifying. That dependence is humiliating. Or one of a million other crippling variations. But I believe that even a child with the right parents faces their own challenges when it comes to finding love. If a child grows up seeing love as protection, caretaking, loyalty and sacrifice, that's what they identify as love. 
Unless our childhood experiences were traumatic, and often even if they were, we tend to view them as normal. Then when we are loved by someone who shows it differently, for example through joy, time and abundance, it may take us longer to notice and appreciate those qualities as genuine expressions of love. If your parents loved you, you might become a good and kind person, or you might hold those you meet to an impossible standard of love. Unless we do this work of examining our samskaras, we're often unaware of these impressions. We just assume the way we think and feel is the reasonable response. In this way, the gifts our parents give us can create as many pitfalls as the gaps. If there is a gap in how our parents raised us, we look to others to fill it. And if there is a gift, in how our parents raised us, we look to others to give us the same. My mother's love for me was a gift. It enabled me to give love to others. But my parents never went to my rugby matches. Because of that gap, I first looked for validation from my peers. I wanted my friends at school to think I was strong and tough because I was eager for some kind of support that I didn't get at home. By the time I became a monk, I still hadn't found a way to satisfy my longing for validation. But during my studies at the ashram, I looked in the karma mirror and realized that even when I did get the validation I yearned for, I was never satisfied. Even when I received authentic, positive feedback from others, I was never satisfied. And I think this is often true, that it's hard for others to truly understand what we go through to get a good result. We first seek validation from those closest to us. Then, unsatisfied, we look for it from everyone. And finally, we find it in ourselves. It was the gap that my parents created that eventually taught me this lesson. I had to be happy with myself. Parental gifts and gaps play out in various ways in our relationships. My parents always gave me gifts that made me feel special on my birthday, whereas Radhi's family's gift to her was quality time. These are cherished aspects of each of our childhoods, but on my birthday, Radhi might give me quality time when I'm expecting a gift. The more aware we are of our expectations and where they came from, the more we can communicate our needs and adapt to our partners. We all respond differently to the gifts and gaps we faced. If you saw your parents argue, you might grow up to be argumentative or defensive. Or you might heal yourself from it and make a conscious effort not to treat others that way. Or you might help others work through their conflicts. If your parents create a volatile household, you might try to keep the peace at all times and hide your true feelings. Karma lets us choose how to respond and the options can be subtle and varied. This isn't about being right or wrong. We're looking for where we have used our karma in ways that have benefited our relationships and where we're still making unconscious choices. If your father was a jerk, 
you might date a bunch of jerks until you finally wise up and settle down with a nice guy. This is learning the lesson of karma. Many of us feel like we didn't get the right upbringing. This could be anything from not having our basic needs taken care of to not having opportunities that would have helped us get a better footing in life. Even if our parents believe in us, encourage our strengths, assure us that our disappointments aren't the end of the world and consistently scaffold our confidence in other ways, they can't hand us a perfectly developed psyche in a neatly wrapped package. And many parents themselves struggle with self-confidence, self-esteem, self-improvement, self-love, self-care. It's hard for them to pass these qualities onto their kids when they have their own challenges. It might sound like we're doomed, but I promise you we're not. We're just focusing too much on what our parents should have done or wishing they'd behave differently rather than figuring out what we ourselves can do. No matter how imperfect a situation we were born into, we can learn from our karma and use it to guide us into and through the relationship we want. Try this. Identify parental gifts and gaps. Memories. Write down three of your best memories from your childhood. Write down three of your worst memories from your childhood. Identify a challenging time in your childhood. Did your parents help you through it? How? How did it affect you? Your answers may not be black or white. A loving response might have soothed you or it might have fostered a dependent relationship. A harsh response might have damaged your self-esteem or built your resilience. What matters isn't whether your parents were the best parents in the world. It's a question of how their treatment of you played out in your development. Expectations What expectations did your parents have of you? Did these expectations motivate you? Put pressure on you? How do they affect your relationships? If your parents expected you to achieve a certain level of success or to be in a relationship with a certain kind of person, you might either be unnecessarily attached to that outcome or you may have reacted against it. How are those forces still at play in your life? I had a friend whose parents drilled it into her that she should marry someone ambitious but her last boyfriend broke up with her because, as he put it, I don't want to be your business partner. I want to be your boyfriend. She had to let go of what her parents wanted for her and rethink her ideas of what a true partner should be. Modeling What elements of a relationship did your parents model that you liked, disliked? So often in relationships, we reject or repeat what our parents did. If they argued, you may avoid conflict. If they had a certain power dynamic, you may expect the same in your relationship or avoid it at all costs. Emotional support What kind of love and emotional support do you wish your parents had given you? What did you miss out on? 
Once you become aware of a gift or gap that you're bringing to relationships, you can start to address it. 1. Recognize The first step is to recognize where and when that impression steers you wrong. Does it come up on social media? With a particular group of people? When you try to celebrate with your partner? When you travel? 2. Remind yourself the reminder is a note to yourself about how you want to be or don't want to be. Set a reminder that will catch you in the moment when you're at risk for acting in a way you'd rather not. Do you have a challenge ahead where you'll expect a kind of support that your partner doesn't usually give? Are you jealous when you see your partner interacting in groups? Does a certain kind of behavior always trigger your anger. Before the moment happens, find a way to remind yourself that you want to change in that moment, time and space. It might be as simple as putting a post-it note on your bathroom mirror or writing a note to yourself in your journal or asking your partner to remind you of what you're working on. 3. Repeat Make your reminder into a mantra a phrase that you repeat to yourself over and over. When you do this, it's more likely to come to your mind in the moment when you need it. It might be, love is free of guilt, or anger is not the answer, or ask before you assume. 4. Reduce Before a reaction or expectation goes away, you'll find yourself indulging it less. Make your partner aware so they know that you're working on reducing it. 5. Remove Finally, over time, with attention and repetition, you'll break the habit of the expectation. Whether our parents neglected or fulfilled us in ways large and small, when we first leave the nest, we are hardwired to look outward to others for validation and satisfaction instead of inward toward ourselves. We gravitate towards partners who may fill our voids, but we may also fail to open our minds and hearts to people who might suit us better. Looking in the karma mirror helps us stop chasing others who might fulfill emotional needs from our childhoods and start fulfilling them ourselves. At the same time, the more you become aware of these influences in your own life, the more you'll be able to see how a partner's parents impact them. This gives you greater understanding and patience with yourself and your partner. Movie Magic Our parents aren't the only samskaras in our approach to love. From the time we're children, Movies, TV, music and other media sell us a romanticized ideal of love. Snow White sings, Someday my prince will come and we are promised that the person of our dreams will show up, will quickly recognize them as our destiny and they will sweep us off our feet and carry us into the sunset. In Forrest Gump, Tom Hanks as the titular character walks onto a bus for his first day of school. 
and when Jenny invites him to sit next to her, he narrates, I had never seen anything so beautiful in my life. She was like an angel. The love story takes off from there. Romances want us to believe in love at first sight. But in his book, Face Value, Professor Alexander Todorov shows that first impressions are likely to be wrong. We think that people who look happy are more trustworthy and we think that people who look tired are less intelligent, though these impressions have no link to reality. We assign positive qualities to faces that we consider typical. And although there is no average human face, we like faces that are closer to our own definition of a typical face. In spite of the unreliability of first impressions, a group of psychologists at the University of Pennsylvania combed through data from more than 10,000 people who had tried speed dating and found that most of them decided whether they were attracted to someone within just three seconds. Studies show that first impressions like this are easily influenced by factors we may not even register. In one study, psychologists from Yale University had participants briefly hold either a cup of warm or iced coffee. They were then given a packet containing information about a person they didn't know and were asked to assess that person. The people who had held the warm coffee described the individuals they read about as substantially warmer in personality than those who had held the iced coffee. So the next time you arrange a first date, you might want to take them for a nice hot cocoa instead of an ice cream sundae. When it comes to meeting people, the context effect refers to how the atmosphere in which we encountered them can impact our impression of them. Think of running into someone in the lobby of a theater after you've just watched a romantic comedy. You're cued to think of their potential as a love match more than if you ran into them after watching the documentary Slugs, Nature's Little Scamps. Or imagine meeting someone at a wedding which is like having just watched a hundred romantic comedies. You might be more likely to see that person as having marriage potential than if you met them at a bar. Cinematic images of love set the standard for how love should occur and often they make us feel like we're not achieving the level of romance that we should. In 500 Days of Summer, Tom, who writes greeting cards, shows his boss a Valentine's Day card and says, If somebody gave me this card, Mr. Vance, I would eat it. It's these cards and the movies and the pop songs. They're to blame for all the lies and the heartache. Everything. Hollywood is hardly the only culprit. The Bollywood movies that I watched as a child did a number on me. I dreamed of that romantic happily ever after that Bollywood always touted. You would think that I outgrew these notions when I served as a monk. But as I described in the introduction, when I wanted to ask Radhi to marry me, my images of engagements came from this samskara. Hence the riverbank, acapella, horse-drawn extravaganza. Radhi and I worked out, thank God, 
but her allergic reaction to the horse reminded me that I should think about the person in front of me instead of succumbing to the media influences surrounding me. Similarly, when I wanted to buy her an engagement ring, I asked a friend how to pick one. He told me to get the nicest ring I could, spending about two to three months' salary on it, so I did. I didn't ask how he came up with that figure. If I had, he probably would have said, Oh, it's what someone told me when I was getting engaged. Only years later did I find out that before World War II, only 10% of engagement rings were set with diamonds. Then, the diamond industry contrived to make them the official jewel of marriage and love. Almost 50 years later, having achieved that, they set out to define how much a man should spend on a ring. In 1977, an ad for De Beers Jewelers showed the silhouettes of a couple on a beach. The shadow of a man slips a diamond ring on the shadow of the woman's finger, and the gold-banded ring is the only color in the ad. They kiss, and the voiceover says, The Diamond Engagement Ring. How else could two months' salary last forever? It was jewelers who told the world exactly how much a man should spend on an engagement ring. How's that for a conflict of interest? That ad was released before my friend was even born, and yet it influenced him, me, and millions of others, spreading the belief that if you love someone, you should spend a big chunk of change on a diamond. There are fewer rom-coms being produced these days, but when we examine our ideas of love, we have to look back to the ideas that were planted when we were young, before we were watching critically, before we had any experience against which to judge them. When Lily James played Cinderella in the 2015 movie, the Swarovski crystal-studded glass slipper didn't actually fit on her foot. No maiden in the land fits the shoe, she told the Washington Post. So the prince is going to die alone. The promise of a happily ever after turns out to be an obstacle to happily ever after. Try this. Media love. Think of the first time you heard a love song or saw a movie that shaped or changed how you feel about love. What characteristics of love did it present? Do you believe in them? Have you achieved them in your past relationships? You had me at hello, Jerry Maguire. I wish I knew how to quit you, Brokeback Mountain. To me, you are perfect, love actually. As you wish, the Princess Bride. You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. It's a wonderful life. I'm also just a girl, standing in front of a boy, asking him to love her. Notting Hill When we understand the samskaras that media have planted about love stories, then we don't require Hollywood perfection in our own relationships. We're willing to try a love that starts slowly or plays out differently. 
First loves. Our ideas of love are also shaped by our early romances. In 2015, the artist Rora Blue invited people to anonymously post messages to their first loves. Over a million people responded with notes like, "You ruined me, but I still write you love notes on paper plates and napkins," and "You'll always be etched into my bones," and "I loved losing myself in you, but it's been forever." And I still can't find myself. And if I keep my eyes closed, he looks just like you. There's a biological reason first loves create some scars. A key area of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, doesn't develop fully until we're about 25 years old. As brain expert Daniel Amen describes it, the prefrontal cortex. Helps us to think before we speak and act, and to learn from our mistakes. Young people think with their feelings. Without a fully developed prefrontal cortex filter, much of our mental life runs through our amygdala, a brain center associated with emotional processes like fear and anxiety. As we age, our passion is tempered by reason and self-control. And we don't feel with the same wild abandon. Those of us who felt the passion of young love may remember it as more intense than anything in adult life, even if it wasn't ideal or even healthy. The first time you enter a relationship out of pure infatuation, the person might break your heart. If you don't accept the lesson and enter your next relationship. Again, out of infatuation, then the second time you might find yourself bored and acting out of character. The third time, the person might steal your money. Karma will bring you the same lesson through a different person again and again until you change. And sometimes it will bring you the same lessons with your partner over and over again. Vedic teachings say that there are three levels of intelligence. In the first level, when someone tells you the fire will burn you, you listen and learn and never touch fire. In the second level, you experience it for yourself. You touch fire, it burns you, and you learn not to touch fire again. In the third level, you keep burning yourself, but you never learn. If we don't heed our karma, we're stuck in the third level of intelligence, and we bear the scars. We forget that what we experienced in the past holds information about how we'll feel if we do it again. Often, when we believe that we have bad luck in relationships, the real problem is that we keep ignoring the data and refusing the karmic lesson. In other words. If you don't learn anything, you repeat the same mistake. Karma encourages you to reflect on the choice, the reason you made it, and what you should do differently next time. Let's look deeply at some of the types we date and what karmic lessons they have to offer. The rebel. In the movie I Know What You Did Last Summer, Julie says to Ray, "I hate this." I really hate this. 
you're going to go and you're going to fall for some head-shaven, black-wearing, tattoo-covered, body-piercing philosophy student. Ray answers, that sounds attractive. This character is found over and over again in literature and movies, from Rochester in Jane Eyre and Heathcliff in Withering Heights to Edward in Twilight. Being attracted to someone who bucks the system isn't necessarily a mistake, but if you keep hoping adventure and mystery will give way to loyalty and responsibility, it's time to learn from your choices. Why are you attracted to this person? Are they offering you the relationship you want? If you're ready to move into a deeper commitment, then you'll need to choose someone based on the qualities they have to offer instead of just their rebellious allure. The Chase Sometimes we're drawn to someone who is emotionally, even physically unavailable. They keep moving, but sometimes pause just long enough to keep us hoping. We are enchanted by them, so we convince ourselves that they will stop in their tracks and suddenly give us their time and attention. We're sure that once they finally focus on us, they'll fall in love with us. So we commit ourselves to tracking them down. Where are they? How are they spending their time when they could be with us? When will they call? How can we make ourselves visible and available without seeming desperate. When we're caught up in the chase, we are not getting to know a person, discovering compatibilities, learning about each other, and growing together. All of our romantic energy is invested, but there is no return. In her book, Why Him, Why Her, anthropologist Helen Fisher, the chief scientific advisor for Match.com, explains that playing hard to get creates a phenomenon she calls frustration attraction. She writes, barriers intensify feelings of romantic love, probably because the brain pathways associated with pleasure, energy, focus, and motivation keep working when a reward is delayed. However, she adds that researchers have looked at the eventual result of playing hard to get and found no evidence that it helps establish a long-term relationship. No matter which side of hard to get you're on, if you're not spending time together, you're not building a relationship. If you're drawn to the thrill of the chase, be aware of what you're choosing. If you start a relationship with a musician who is constantly on the road, then you can't expect them to give up their career and spend all their time with you. When someone is unavailable, they will generally stay that way. Are you drawn to them because you're looking for someone who is as busy as you are? Or did you grow up with an unavailable parent so that is the only level of love you think you deserve? To use your karma well, you must be conscious of who you're choosing, why, and whether they fit what you want in your life, as you began to explore in Rule 1. The Project Sometimes a partner needs saving. You are compelled to take care of them, giving them attention, help, and stability. This may play to your nurturing side. In the short term, it makes you feel competent and in control. They need you, and you feel like you can help them live a better life. But in the long term, if they aren't transforming, 
you feel drained and resentful because you've become that person's caregiver. You're not equals and you're investing far more in the relationship than they are. Dominating a relationship bolsters our ego and makes us feel important. It doesn't require us to question ourselves or to follow our partner's suggestions. But ultimately, it interferes with the long-term connection we're trying to form. We're attracted to the dynamic rather than the person. If you love the role of guiding, leading and giving advice, you can find that elsewhere in your life. Try this. Relationship roles. Here are some questions to help you examine what role you played in your most recent relationship or expect to have in a new relationship. Is it what you want? You'll play all the roles I describe, but you want to move toward being supporters of each other while consciously allowing for moments of being fixers and dependent. Type 1. Fixer Did you find yourself constantly trying to solve, nurture, help or make the other person better? Were you trying to carry them, trying to make their goals happen for them? Type 2. Dependent did you feel like you relied on your partner too much? Did you go to them with all your issues and expect them to find solutions? Type 3. Supporter Did you like their personality, respect their values and want to help them toward their goals? Did you respect how they spent their time and kept their space? Or did you always want them to change it? The fixer has a parental mentality. You feel that it's your responsibility to take care of the other person, nurture them. Their happiness is your priority. This mentality can be useful, but it can also go overboard. When you parent your partner, it makes them behave like a child. The dependent has a childlike mentality. You rely on your partner. You want them to figure it all out and you get upset when they can't solve everything for you. Sometimes we settle into this mentality when we have a domineering partner. It can feel comforting to have someone else take the lead. But we lose out when we don't follow our own path and shape our own lives. The supporter is their partner's champion. You are not a parent, you're not a child. You're side by side with your partner. You're trying to take responsibility. You're trying to develop patience. You're trying to help the other person grow, but you're not trying to micromanage. This is the Goldilocks just right mentality. For a quiz to help figure out the relationship role that you play, please visit www.relationshiproles.com. It's natural to move in and out of all three of these roles throughout our relationships. Sometimes we take the lead. Sometimes we're more comfortable following. What we're trying to avoid is dating a type with whom we're stuck in the same dynamic all the time. Being a full-time fixer means your partner isn't taking their own journey. We don't have the right to take it for them. It's not our role to fix something that may not even be broken. Being fragile full-time means you lack confidence and seek validation from others. 
you feel broken and want someone to fix you. Being with someone who supports this side of you interferes with you taking responsibility for your own growth, joy and success. The supporter is an ideal to strive for. Both partners communicate as equals. Your partner is always teaching you, but you're always teaching them. And when you both understand that you're both teaching and learning at the same time, that's when you create a partnership. More on this in Rule 3. The F-Boy or F-Girl When we date someone who sleeps around, they are clearly communicating that they aren't interested in an exclusive commitment. If that's what you're looking for, consider whether it's worth staying in it for great sex. Sex can distract us from making good choices about who to be with and whether to stay with them. And one of the biggest causes of that distraction is the hormone oxytocin. According to neuroscientist and psychiatrist Daniel Amen, oxytocin is related to feelings of being in love and the release of oxytocin can support and even accelerate bonding and trust. Generally, men have lower levels of oxytocin than women, but sex causes men's oxytocin levels to spike more than 500%. New York University neuroscientist Robert Fromke says that oxytocin acts like a volume dial, turning up and amplifying brain activity related to whatever someone is already experiencing. During and after sex, we feel more in love, but it's not actually love. We feel closer chemically, even though we're not closer emotionally. Additionally, the hormone actually has a temporary blocking effect on negative memories. So all of those little things that were bothering you or the argument you had beforehand which might have been a major warning sign, could fade after sex. When I interviewed husband and wife relationship experts John and Julie Gottman on my podcast, John said that oxytocin can be the hormone of bad judgment. He says, you keep thinking it's going to be okay because that hormone makes you feel safe and secure and you don't see the red flags the person is sending saying, I'm not trustworthy. If someone makes it clear that they aren't interested in committing, there can still be a fun connection, but know that you aren't likely to learn much from them. The Opulent One The Bhagavad Gita talks about six opulences. Knowledge, fame, money, beauty, strength and renunciation. Sometimes we're attracted to someone who has a single opulence and this is enough to prematurely convince us we're in love. In Beyonce's song Halo, the light surrounding someone convinces her they're everything she needs and more. Yet someone's halo isn't necessarily an accurate indicator of who they are. In psychology, the halo effect is a type of cognitive bias where we form an inaccurate impression of someone or something based on a single trait or characteristic. For instance, if someone is attractive, 
we're more likely to assign other positive attributes to them, like intelligence, wit, or kindness. This particular halo effect is called the attractiveness stereotype. One study showed that teachers graded attractive students more favorably when the class was in person, but not when the class was online and the teachers couldn't see the students. Other studies showed that servers deemed to be more attractive made higher tips. When we see a good-looking person, we might make unconscious assumptions that they're wealthier or more ambitious or more likable and so on, and this can influence our attraction to them. The Bhagavad Gita says that the six opulences show us the fallibility of desire. We want attention, but a million likes won't make us feel loved. We want beauty, but we try to make youth, which is not the only kind of beauty, last forever. We want money, but it won't buy happiness. Try googling lottery winners if you want proof of that. If we look for the opulences in a partner, we are being sold a temporary bill of goods. The Bhagavad Gita says that divine love of God is to know their greatness but gravitate toward their sweetness. You may know all of your partner's accolades and achievements, but that doesn't define them as an individual. Being attracted to our partners for what they have or what they've achieved is not a bad place to start, but it's not a good place to end. Abilities and achievements don't matter so much as qualities and actions. We make the mistake of assigning qualities to people based on their abilities. We assume that a good communicator will be trustworthy. We think a writer must be thoughtful. A manager must be organized. The only way we can know what qualities a person truly has is by spending time with them and observing them. Only when we know someone intimately and deeply do we find the sweetness in them. Try this. Reflect and learn from a past relationship. We tend to base successes in relationships on how long they last, but their actual value lies in how much we learn and grow from them. If we understand that, we can examine the choices we've made, assess why we picked a person, figure out what went wrong, and develop a better sense of whom to pick and whether we need to change anything for next time. 1. What energy were you in when you chose to be with your ex? Energy of ignorance. In this energy, you might have picked someone because you were bored, because there was nobody else around, or because you were lonely. Choices made in ignorance lead to depression, pain, and stress. Energy of passion. In this energy, you picked someone because you wanted one of the opulences. Decisions made in passion start well, but have to deepen into understanding and respect, or else they end terribly. Energy of goodness. In this energy, you chose someone with whom you felt connected and compatible. There was mutual respect, and often these relationships end with some feelings of respect still intact. 2. 
Why did it end? Be as honest with yourself as you can when you assess what went wrong in this relationship. 3. Learn from it. What can you think of that you will try to do differently next time? Can you enter your next relationship from an energy of goodness? Can you set aside opulences and look for qualities that make good partners? You attract what you use to impress. The opulences highlight a very practical way of understanding karma. If we are attracted to someone for their ambition, that's what we get, a person whose priority is ambition. There's nothing wrong with ambition until you realize that you want someone who has lots of time to share with you. Sometimes we feel like none of the options before us are people we want to date. And then we have to ask ourselves, why are these my options? Why are we attracting these people? and how can we attract the ones we want again karma has the answer if you put something into the world you get it back this is karma in its most basic form if i use money to present myself as valuable i'll attract someone who believes that money is what makes me valuable when we present ourselves we are signaling the dynamic we want how we expect to be treated what we think we deserve i had one client who is a successful entrepreneur he was upset because every woman he met only wanted him for his money but every picture he posted in his online profile showed him in a supercar or him in front of another home he'd bought he said i'm not like that in person but he shouldn't have been surprised that he was attracting a certain type of person If you use wealth to impress someone, you are committing to whatever it takes to sustain your wealth. But one day you may want to change how you spend your time. You may want to feel that your partner values you for more than your net worth. If you use your body to impress someone, you are putting yourself in a position where aging is hard to accept. One day your body will change and you may want a partner whose love will last for years. If you use your social status to impress someone, you may find that someone with a higher social status is more attractive to your partner. Or something may change your status and you'll want a partner who can support you through a hard time. If you use your intellect to impress someone, you may find that you don't feel an emotional connection. If you use sex to impress someone, you are setting a standard for physical connection that may be hard for one or both of you to sustain if attraction fades. When we put ourselves out in the world, whether it's on a first date, social media, or a dating profile, we are saying, "This is the version of me that I want you to like." It's important to put out the version of yourself that you want someone to be attracted to as opposed to the version of yourself that you think someone would be attracted to these are two different things if you attract someone through a persona then you're either going to have to fake being that promotable person forever or they're eventually going to discover the real you 
One study showed that 53% of online daters lied in their profiles. Women more than men, and more often about looks, doing things like posting an old photo so they looked younger. And men, more often about financial status. Considering that men tend to rank physical attractiveness as a highly valued characteristic in a potential partner, and women tend to rank financial success similarly, you can see how that might play out, at least in heterosexual relationships. Even if your self-positioning is more subtle and you're willing to play out the role you've invented indefinitely, you will always know in your heart that you aren't loved for who you really are. You've made them fall in love with a character that you created, not you. By pretending to be someone else, you will attract strife into your life. Save yourself that time and energy. It's natural to want to present the best version of yourself. You may be doing this through the opulences, whether by trying to slip where you went to college into conversation or taking your date to an expensive restaurant to demonstrate wealth or uploading your most seductive photos to a dating website. We can easily get caught up in judging ourselves by our net worth or the way we show it in material possessions, our friends or followers, our physical appeal. But we all know people who have high value using these metrics and still have low self-worth. There is a saying that the poor man begs outside the temple while the rich man begs inside it. Or, as Russell Brand puts it, the more that I've detached myself from the things that I thought would make me happy, like money and fame and other people's opinions, the more truth is being revealed. We market ourselves to others using our opulences, but doing that won't benefit us in the long run. We want to show our real personality, values and goals, so we are loved for what matters most to us. The converse is also true. Be aware if opulences are what attract you to your partner and beware if they're all that attracts you. You don't want to end up with someone whom you're only attracted to physically or whose social life captivates you or whom you only connect with about work or whose external success compels you. These qualities are tied to temporary situations and characteristics. They won't last, and when they are gone, so is the relationship. When I met Radhi, I had nothing. No, that's not true. What's true is that we've been together ever since all I had to offer her was myself. And that seemed to be enough. Try this. What you showcase. When there's a disparity between what attracts your partner and what you love about yourself, you may struggle to live up to their vision. First, make a list of what you love about yourself. Think about the qualities you're most proud of and try to steer clear of the opulences. Are you kind, caring, hardworking, honest, creative, grateful, flexible, reliable? Now, for each of your long-term or defining relationships, make a list of the qualities you think that person saw and appreciated in you. 
we want to build relationships where we are loved for what we love in ourselves. What you want from someone else, first give to yourself. Once we have a better sense of the samskaras we've gathered over the years, we can look at how they've influenced our choices and see if we like the results. We don't want to make the same mistakes over and over again. We want to carry the gifts from our past into the present. But we can't assume our partner will receive them exactly as we expect. We don't want to bring gaps to our relationships expecting our partner to fill them. We want to fill our own gaps. As you observe your partner or potential partner, consider what draws you to them. Is your judgment influenced by outdated criteria from your past? If your parents gave you all their attention, are you expecting that from a partner? Do the movies you saw in your youth have you expecting to be swept off your feet? Was your first love remote and unavailable, so you're stuck in a pattern of repeating that dynamic? One of my clients was getting really angry at his wife when she didn't come home from work on time. I asked him why he was having such a strong reaction. And in the course of our work, he realized that his own mother never came home on time and it had bothered his father. He had inherited his father's anxiety. I asked him what his wife's lateness signified for him. After some thought, he said, It's like she doesn't care about me and doesn't want to spend time with me. I suggested that he ask his wife about it. And we talked about how instead of saying, So how come you're always late in an accusatory tone? He could ask, What have you been working on? Is it exciting or stressful? It turned out that his wife was stressed about a project and that she thought in three months' time she'd be able to start coming home earlier. She didn't realize that it would have eased his mind to know about this project and when it might end. But even more important was his realization that the reason for her lateness differed from his interpretation. It wasn't a perfect happily ever after, but he was able to come to terms with the situation instead of enduring his inherited anxiety. He asked for time with her over the weekend and they figured out how to address both of their needs. Our relationships aren't supposed to be responses to what our parents did and didn't give us or balms for the insecurities of our youth. If we look to our partners to fill an emotional gap, this puts undue pressure on our partner. We're asking them to take responsibility for our happiness. That's like saying, I won't drive my car until my partner puts gas in it. Why wait for someone else to make you feel good? And that's why it's so deeply important that we heal ourselves, taking charge of that process instead of shifting blame and responsibility to a partner. If we're trying to fill an old void, we'll choose the wrong partner. A partner can't fill every gap. They can't unpack our emotional baggage for us. Once we fulfill our own needs, we're in a better place to see what a relationship can give us.
Meanwhile, and always, you can give yourself what you want to receive. If you want to treat yourself, you could make plans to go someplace you've never been before, or arrange a birthday celebration for yourself, or dress beautifully for an upcoming event. If you want to feel respected at work, you could decide that you're going to make a list for your own benefit of everything you contributed to a project. We think of feeling appreciated, respected, and loved as core needs in a relationship. But when we attend to these needs for ourselves in small ways every day, then we don't have to wait for our partner to deliver them through a grand gesture. Try this. Give yourself what you want to receive. Fill your own gaps by looking for ways to treat yourself the way you're looking for others to treat you. I never felt appreciated by my parents. If you want to be appreciated, what do you want to be appreciated for? What can you do every day that makes you feel appreciated? I never felt like my parents thought I was special. If you want to feel special, what do you want to feel special for? What can you do every day? to make yourself feel special. My parents didn't respect my feelings or opinions. If you want to feel respected, what do you want to be respected for? What can you do every day to respect yourself? These are hard questions, so take your time with them. Answers may not come quickly. Ponder them for a day, a week, you may gradually start to identify recurring negative thoughts that you've carried from your past. If you keep telling yourself, I'm nobody until someone tells me I'm someone, it will make you more prone to insecurity, stress, and pressure. If you often tell yourself that you're not good enough, you become not good enough. We need to disrupt those negative patterns by developing new thought patterns. It may feel forced or fake, but when you practice these new positive thought patterns, you start living up to them. Check in with yourself. Set aside three minutes before you start your day and three minutes at the end of your day to make sure you're filling your own gaps. Attaching new habits to the beginning or end of things is natural to us and the best way to bring the behaviors and beliefs we need into our lives. In the three minutes you've set aside in the morning, sit by yourself and pick one thing you can do for yourself today to improve your day. It might be deciding to make a lunch date with your friend you haven't seen in a while. It might be showing up at a yoga class or taking no phone calls for the first hour of the morning. To wake up and hope the day will be great is outsourcing the day. Instead, pick just one act you can perform yourself that might change your day for the better. In the last three minutes of the day, assess how you felt about the one thing you picked. Did it help your day? 
Should you try it again tomorrow or choose something else? Expanding our love. Our preparation for love began with two rules guiding us to solitude and self-examination. We began practices to transform loneliness to productive time in solitude. We unpacked our pasts and began to unlock our samskaras so that we can learn from our karma. Whether you're in a relationship, looking for one or leaving one, these rules help you build and maintain the skills you need for love. By now, you're already better prepared for love than most people. And that opens the door for you to share your love with another person. One of the translators of the Bhagavad Gita, Eknath Ishwaran, said, Love grows by practice. There's no other way. Now, as we move into the practice of love, we will build our ability to recognize love, define it, develop it, trust it, and if and when we are ready, to embrace love. Write a love letter to yourself. Writing a letter to yourself can help you establish a dialogue with yourself and gain self-awareness about how you're thinking and feeling. This in turn will help you make choices and take the next steps in your life. Dear Self, We've been together since the beginning and it's thanks to you that I get to experience this life. You're closer to me than anyone, the only one who knows all that I've seen and done, the only one who has witnessed the world through my eyes, who knows my deepest thoughts, my darkest fears, and my biggest dreams. We've been through a lot together, everything in fact, the highest highs and the lowest lows. You're with me in my greatest moments and the ones I'd like to do over. And no matter what, you've always stuck by me. We're true partners. You're the only one about whom I can say without a doubt that we will always be together. But in spite of your loyalty and your caring, I've sometimes ignored you. I haven't always listened when you told me what's best for me or nudged me in the direction I should go. Instead of looking to you, I looked outward at what others were doing or saying. I distracted myself so I couldn't hear your voice. Instead of caring for you, I sometimes pushed too hard. And yet, you've never abandoned me. You've always forgiven me and you've always welcomed me home without judgment or criticism. For all of that, I thank you. Thank you for being gentle with me, for being strong, for always being willing to learn and grow with me through my mistakes and my triumphs, and for over and over reflecting back to me the best of what is inside me. Thank you for showing me what unconditional love truly means. Love me. Meditation for Solitude 
This meditation is focused on self-love. When we practice love and gratitude for ourselves, we nourish the soil in which love is rooted and from which love in its many forms will grow and blossom. This meditation is best practiced in bed before you go to sleep at night and when you wake up in the morning. Find a comfortable position. Close your eyes if that feels good to you. If not, simply soften your focus. Whether your eyes are open or closed, gently lower your gaze. Take a deep breath in and breathe out. If you find that your mind is wandering, that's okay. Gently bring it back to a space of calm, balance and stillness. Self-gratitude meditation. Breathe normally and naturally. Take a moment to notice the pattern of your breathing. Allow your focus to shift to your body. Notice where it touches the bed and where it does not. If there's a sheet or blanket on you, notice the sensation where it touches your skin. Now, bring your attention to the soles of your feet. Notice how they feel. Express gratitude to your feet for what they allow you to do. I am grateful for your support. I am grateful for how you ground and connect me to the earth. Use whatever language feels natural and welcome to you. Allow your attention to move upward to your lower legs, your knees and your thighs. Notice how they feel. Express gratitude to them. Thank you for your steadiness. Thank you for helping me move around in the world. Bring your focus to your arms. Notice your upper arms, elbows, forearms and hands. Give thanks. Thank you for all you do to help me interact with the world around me, enabling me to care for and express myself. Allow your attention to shift to your face. Notice the nose that lets you smell. The mouth that enables you to eat. The eyes that let you see. And the ears 
that let you hear. Express your gratitude. I'm grateful for the richness you bring to my life, allowing me to enjoy nourishing food, to hear music, to smell flowers, and to take in the beauty of nature and the world around me. Now take a moment to go inside beneath the skin. Scan slowly downward, starting with your brain. Express gratitude to your brain for all the important functions it is able to perform. Thank you for all you do to coordinate and monitor. This miraculous organism that is me, for enabling me to process information, to think, to joke, to appreciate, to feel compassion, and to take action. Lower your focus to your heart. Notice its rhythm. As it beats inside your chest, express your gratitude. Thank you for working all day and all night, whether I appreciate you or not, whether I acknowledge you or not. Shift your attention to your lungs. Notice how your rib cage softly expands and collapses with each breath. Give thanks. Thank you for filling me with life. Allow your attention to drop to your stomach. Notice how it feels. Thank your stomach. I am grateful for how you digest food to create the energy I need for each day. Slowly, shift your focus back out to your whole body. Take a moment to express gratitude to your body or to your mind. For whatever stands out to you in this moment, and when you're ready, you can gently and softly open your eyes and just be present. Part two: Compatibility, learning to love others. The second ashram, Grihastha, is the stage of life when we extend our love to others while still loving ourselves. This stage introduces the challenges of learning to understand, appreciate, and cooperate with another mind, another set of values, and another set of likes and dislikes on a daily basis. Here we explore the challenges of karma, maitri. Loving others. 
Rule 3. Define love before you think it, feel it, or say it. My boyfriend told me he loved me, and a week later, he fully ghosted me. I told my partner I loved her. She said, thank you. I was dating a girl for several weeks. When I told her I thought I was starting to fall in love with her, she said she needed more space. We've been together for three years and we say I love you before bed. Same time every night. I'm not sure it means anything anymore. We say I love you or wait for the right time to say it or hope someone will say it to us but there is no universal agreement as to what it means. For some it means I want to spend the rest of my life with you. For some people, saying I love you means I want to spend the night with you. Between those two intentions are infinite others and some of us say it without any particular intention because in that moment we just feel something we interpret as love. This leaves a lot of room for confusion, miscommunication and false expectations. Writer Samantha Taylor says, the first time I told my now husband I loved him, we were spending one of those long nights on the phone early in our dating relationship, back when people actually talked on the phone. Delirious with sleepiness, I told him that I wanted to tell him I loved him but didn't want to scare him off. Don't worry, he told me. Saying I love you isn't a big deal to me. I love my mom, I love my friends, I love you too. Great. He loved me like his mom. So romantic. He was telling her that his definition of I love you was different from hers. Broad, low pressure and not particularly romantic. She adds, fortunately, he must have grown to love me in a romantic way because we've been married for almost 10 years. We say I love you in so many different contexts with family and friends and lovers that it doesn't indicate anything but the presence of some sort of affection. And yet we have expectations based on what we assume it means to the other person. I love you doesn't include commitment. It doesn't promise you want to have children together. It doesn't guarantee that you'll put any effort into making a relationship work. It's a beautiful start, but not a substitute for many other meaningful conversations. A survey showed that men are quicker to say I love you than women, taking an average of 88 days. A whopping 39% of them declare their love within the first month. Women take an average of 134 days and 23% of them declare their love in month one. It's hard to imagine that people who feel love within weeks actually live up to what their partners think that statement means. You may feel like you know someone because you've spent time with them and you like their personality, but you may not know their dreams, their values, their priorities, the things that matter to them. You think you know their heart but you just know their mind, 
Love takes time. I'm not saying you need to understand someone fully before you fall in love. We're always learning new things about our partner, but too often we leap to love based on a very small amount of information. In any other area of your life, it's very unlikely that you make a big decision based on such a small amount of information. Love is not black and white. You either love someone or you don't. And there's only one way to do it. Some people renew their vows every 10 years, either to recommit to love or to express how their love has evolved. Some people have long-distance love. Some people are friends with benefits. Some people get divorced, but they find a way to parent together peacefully and comfortably. Recently, a guy came up to me at a wedding and told me he just got out of a long relationship. He said, "We love each other, but leaving each other was the best way to carry on loving each other." That's love too. To discount the many forms of love is to miss many beautiful possibilities. Understanding the nuances allows you to define and honor the love you have with the person you're with. As soon as we say I love you, we're going to have to live up to those words, not by our definition, but by the definition of the person we love. On the flip side, when we accept someone else's love, we have to realize that they aren't using our definition of love. Before we decide that we're in love, before we tell another person we love them, and before we determine what it means when they say those words to us, we must consider how we define love. What do we expect love to feel like? How do we know we love someone? How do we know if they love us? The only way to avoid miscommunication is to talk about love using far more than those three words. This rule will help us figure out what we mean when we say I love you, what it may or may not mean when our partner says it, and how to find a meaning we can share. The four phases of love. When we tell each other we love each other, we rarely elaborate unless it's to add a romantic flourish like so much or to the moon and back. It's pretty black and white. We've either declared our love or we haven't. We don't leave much room for variation or degrees of love. But we can take some cues in the practice of love from the bhakti tradition, an 8th century movement in Hinduism. Bhakti describes the journey of falling in love with the divine in stages. The first stage is shraddha, where we have the spark of faith that makes us take interest in the divine. Notice how even when we're talking about connecting with the divine, there's a preliminary desire. Curiosity and hope drive us to engage. This leads us to the next stage, sadhu sangha, desiring to associate with spiritually advanced persons. Here we find a spiritual teacher, guide, mentor who can help us develop our practice. After that is bhajana kriya, 
where we perform devotional acts like attending services and praying. As our devotion gets deeper, we become free from all material attachments, anarthanivrti, achieve steadiness, nishta, in self-realization, and find enthusiasm, ruchi, for serving the divine. This taste leads us to further attachment, which is called bhava. This is the preliminary stage of pure love of the divine. Then finally, we reach pure love for the divine, prem. This is the supreme stage of life, where we have attained the highest form of a divine loving relationship, unbound by awe and reverence or any kind of hierarchy. Because the bhakti stages of love describe an intimate, direct relationship between a person and their God, they can apply in many ways to how we love each other. So I decided to bring the model down to earth and reinterpret it for the practice of understanding and loving another person. When it comes to love, we expect that we'll know when we know. But our experiences of love can be different at different times. The four phases of love I'm about to describe can all look like love and feel like love and they are all part of the journey of love. How do you know if you're in love with someone? Love isn't being called every day or having your chair pulled out for you or feeling warm and fuzzy when you see someone. Love isn't a purely romantic fairy tale and it isn't pragmatically checking qualities off a list. Looking at these phases helps us understand love differently, define love for ourselves and better articulate our feelings of love. At the same time, seeing the levels of love helps us understand why our partner might have a different concept of love than we do. Knowing what phase you're in helps orient you for progress to the next phase. And when you can't see yourself getting to the next phase, then you might enjoy it for a while, but you know that it's not sustainable. We might not progress in exactly this order, and the rest of this book will show you how we cycle back through the phases. This is a cycle we will repeat not just with one partner, but with pretty much everyone who plays an important role in our lives. This is the practice of love. 1. Attraction 2. Dreams 3. Struggle and growth 4. Trust Phase 1. Attraction in phase one, we feel a spark of intrigue, interest and attraction. This makes us want to figure out if someone is worth our time and effort. Researchers describe what we call love as three distinct drives in the brain. Lust, attraction and attachment. When we move from lust to attraction, we're taking the generalized desire to connect with someone and focusing it on a specific person. The brain chemicals involved in lust differ from those that produce attraction. Lust is governed more by testosterone and estrogen, whereas attraction includes dopamine, the reward chemical, 
norepinephrine, the brain's version of adrenaline, which when combined with dopamine can generate that feeling of euphoria around the target of our attraction. Additionally, levels of the feel-good hormone serotonin actually drop in this phase, which contributes to our feelings of anxiety and passion in the early stages of attraction. We have an exciting surge of hope and belief that someone could be the right person for us. We feel intrigue and interest. We swipe right. Love often starts with this thrilling hint of possibility. It means, you intrigue me. I want more. Chemistry like this feels amazing, but we should be careful not to think that chemistry is the only way love begins or that it is the entirety of love. Time helps you understand whether what you're feeling is truly love. Think about what it's like when you place an order for a chair on a website. It looks good online. It fits beautifully into a room pictured on your favorite home store site. But when it arrives, it isn't comfortable to sit on. In attraction, we observe people for how they appear, but we don't understand what it's like to have a relationship with them. I used to know this guy who came up to me every month and told me he had fallen in love with another girl, someone he'd bumped into or met on Instagram. For a week, he'd be completely infatuated. And then a few weeks later, it would be someone else. In the attraction phase, we have glimpses of love that show us its beauty. Lingering in the attraction phase is pleasurable. With new people, we've carefully exposed what we want them to see, our best features. There are few arguments, expectations and disappointments. We can sustain the fantasy of a perfect match, but it takes a deeper connection to go beyond phase one. Science supports the idea that having deeper connections bodes well for relationships. Professor Matthias Mel at the University of Arizona in Tucson and his team studied whether the conversations we have affect our well-being. Specifically, they were looking at the difference between small talk and having deep, meaningful discussions. They had 79 participants wear recorders for four days while they went about their daily lives. The devices were designed to record snippets of ambient sound, netting about 300 recordings per participant over the four days. The researchers then listened to the recordings and noted when the participants were alone or talking with others, and when their conversation was superficial, what do you have there? Popcorn? Yummy. Or deep? She fell in love with your dad? So did they get divorced soon after? The researchers also assessed participants' well-being through a series of statements, such as, I see myself as someone who is happy, satisfied with life. They found that higher rates of well-being were associated more with people who had deep conversations than those who made more small talk. Going deep isn't a technique. It can only be a genuine experience that leads to a true connection. But we can examine our own willingness to open up 
and be vulnerable with people as we build trust with them. Social scientists say that vulnerability leads to reciprocal escalating self-disclosure. What this means is that over time, a couple begins to reveal vulnerabilities to each other. That's the self-disclosure. Sharing parts of yourself doesn't mean bearing your whole soul all at once. Sometimes, when we are caught up in the moment, we're tempted to do that. But if we gradually unveil our personalities, values and goals, we start to see if there is a connection. Letting yourself be vulnerable with this intention keeps you feeling protected, like you aren't exposed too much too fast to a person you can't trust. If it all goes well, you reveal increasingly intimate facets of yourself at a pace where you feel comfortable. That's where the escalating comes in. And the disclosure is a gift that you give back and forth to each other. That's reciprocal. It is with reciprocal escalating self-disclosure that we start to truly know a person. The three-date rule. In my experience working with clients, three dates usually provide enough time to determine if you and another person would be a good match. These three dates don't have to be your first three dates and you don't have to do them one after another. You can spread them out. Sometimes it's nice to just see a movie. In these dates, you'll focus on three areas. Whether you like their personality, whether you respect their values, and whether you would like to help them achieve their goals. For simplicity's sake, I'm going to suggest focusing on these qualities sequentially, one per date but you'll probably be uncovering some aspect of each dimension during each date. First, we start with personality because it's the easiest thing to spot, understand and connect with. In their personality, you'll see how their past has shaped them. Second, you'll explore their values, which define who they are today. And third, you'll try to recognize their goals which encapsulate what they want in the future. Date 1 Do you have fun together? Do you enjoy each other's company? Does conversation flow? What makes you comfortable and what makes you uncomfortable? The first date is to find out if you really enjoy each other's personalities. To do so, you need to shift between small talk and deep talk. The topics we gravitate toward, favorite movies or vacation plans, don't help us know people deeply. Instead, you can start to ask questions that inspire both of you to reveal more personal details, including your quirks and imperfections. Remember, we share vulnerabilities gradually as we get to know and trust each other. So on this date, your focus is to see if you enjoy and appreciate their personality. Try to learn something new about them or see a side of them you haven't seen. Here are some light questions you can ask on date one. You'll see that they are questions about taste and preferences. They tread in areas where most people are comfortable. 
but they create the possibility to show real passions. When you ask someone what the best meal they ever had was, the question isn't just about food. It opens up a bigger conversation about where and when they had the food and what made it special. If you ask what they wish they knew more about, you find out about their curiosities and unfulfilled interests. If you hit on a strong interest, like taste in movies or books, you can dig deeper into why they like what they like and find out how introspective they are. Even if you think you know your partner well, the answers might surprise you. What's something you love to do? Do you have a favorite place? Is there a book or movie you've read or seen more than once? What is occupying your thoughts most at the moment? What's something you wish you knew more about? What's the best meal you've ever had? This isn't an interview. Every conversation has two sides. And one aspect of your partner's personality these questions will reveal is whether they're curious about you. Do they ask for your own responses to these questions and dig deeper when they turn the conversation to you? Try this. Prepare for date one. Take the questions I suggested you ask your date and write out your own answers to them. What's something you love to do? Do you have a favorite place? Is there a book or movie you've read or seen more than once? What is occupying your thoughts most at the moment? What's something you wish you knew more about? What's the best meal you've ever had? Once you have your answers, ask yourself what they might tell a person about you. Do these questions bring up some of your strong interests? Do they give you a chance to reveal important aspects of your personality? If not, are there other questions that would? Add those questions to the list you bring to your next date. Date 2 Your date 2 could come after any number of dates spent dancing or going to the museums or talking casually over dinner. But knowing that you enjoy the same movies or like the same cuisine doesn't really tell you if your values are compatible. Gently encourage your date to share meaningful stories and details about their life. Take turns with these questions and make sure again that it's not an interview. In fact, if they hesitate over a question, you might say, I know it's a hard question, I'll go first. Your answers can reveal your own values. If the question is who's the most fascinating person you've ever met, don't just give a name. Say what interested you about the person, what you learned from them, or what you would ask them if you could meet them again. If you're telling a story about something you've done that's out of character, then tell them what's in character for you, why you hold that value, and what made you diverge from it. If they're not immediately open, that's okay. Escalating self-disclosure is a slow build. 
Sometimes when we're ready to share, we think it's the right time for them to open up as well. But people do this at their own pace, in their own time. Ask questions and listen carefully to the response to gauge if the person is hesitant. Give them openings to change the subject, asking, Is this too heavy a topic? Or would you rather not go here right now? Not only do we want to avoid grilling our date, we also don't want to overshare. Taking up all the oxygen in the room with unsolicited, deeply personal stories will only make the person feel overwhelmed. Your ability to be vulnerable and open will help them be vulnerable and to share what feels comfortable at this stage. Here are some uncommon questions you can try out on date two that will help you learn what they find interesting, how they deal with challenges, what they value, how they tolerate risk, and how they make decisions. Who's the most fascinating person you've ever met? What's the most out-of-character thing you've ever done or would like to do? Have you ever had a big plot twist in your life? If you won the lottery, what would you spend the money on? What's the most spontaneous thing you've ever done? What is a tough thing you dealt with in your past? What makes you proud? What would you do if you had enough money to not need a job? Notice how all these questions approach deeper issues without pressure or intensity. You're not asking the worst moment of someone's life or what their darkest secret is. These questions are framed to learn about the other person, but in a playful way. Don't treat your opinions as if they're better than your partner's. They're just different viewpoints that emerge from different backgrounds, different experiences, different upbringings. Date 3 Date 3 should occur when it feels natural to share some of your ideas for the future. Just as you don't need to share the same values, you don't need to have the same goals. One of you might have your whole life mapped out and the other might still be exploring what gives their life meaning. On date 3, you can try out some deeper questions. I'll share some here. Do you have a dream you'd like to fulfill one day? A job, a trip, an accomplishment? What would you like to change about your life? If you could meet anyone, who would it be? Is there a single moment or experience that changed your life? Is there someone you consider to be your greatest teacher? Using the information you glean on these three dates, you can determine if you like a person's personality, respect their values, and want to help them pursue their goals. Notice the verbs I chose here. You don't have to have the same personality so long as you enjoy each other. You don't have to share their values so long as you respect them. Their goals don't even have to be things you want or enjoy. But are you interested in having these aspects of who they are and who they want to be as part of your day-to-day -day life 
and coming to pass near or alongside you. Certain goals, like robbing a bank, should be deal breakers. It might be that you like them so much that you'd be excited to help them with anything within reason that they want to pursue. Or if their goal is to eradicate homelessness in Los Angeles, such a noble goal might in itself make them more attractive. Attraction leads to dreams. When our attraction to a person continues over time, we start to fantasize about the relationship that could develop. What adventures we could have with this person. What our life together would look like. We find ourselves in phase two. Phase two, dreams. In the second phase of love, many of us move fast. Our attraction to this person tells us that they might match our dreams. But our dreams can cloud our vision of the other person and our own needs. In this phase, we strive to dismantle false expectations and focus on designing, building and nurturing a strong relationship based on realistic expectations rather than intoxicating dreams. False Expectations in this phase of love, we often have in mind a checklist of the qualities our partner should have. Sometimes these are very specific and or tied to the opulences. Successful, owns a home, likes to watch basketball, is a certain age or a certain level of fitness, is ready to get married in the next year. Psychologist Lisa Firestone says these unrealistic expectations are exaggerated by technology. Online dating sites can promote the overwhelming notion that there are endless choices in the world, leaving some of us to get stuck in a cycle of perpetual searching or what one team of researchers called relation shopping. We may unintentionally find ourselves seeking perfection or one person who can fill every imaginable criterion we've created in our mind or on our profile. This list-making can turn dreams into requirements. Any potential partner will come with a past, challenges, and possibly trauma just as you do. You simply won't find someone who ticks every box on your checklist. It's okay for different people to fill the different needs on your checklist. Research shows that the happiest people have multiple close relationships. So whether we're coupled or single, we shouldn't look to any one person to meet all our needs. John Cacioppo, a neuroscientist who researched love and affection, told the New York Times, One of the secrets to a good relationship is being attracted to someone out of choice rather than out of need. We might also hope that our partner wants the same things in life that we do. The same standard of living, the same family structure, the same likes and dislikes, the same friends, the same notions of how money should be saved and spent, the same plans for the future in terms of how hard we will work, how successful we will be, where we will live, how we will handle unexpected challenges and how frequently we will make changes. Even if we don't say this or even think it, we subconsciously believe that we must share the same values and goals to be in love. 
When one person wants to spend Sunday with their family and the other wants to play golf or he wants to meet her friends but she's not ready, they can rashly take it as a sign that they're not meant to be. Or later in a relationship, if they don't want to move when we do, we might take it to mean that they don't love us. And if they don't want to get married when we do, we think it's the end. It's also not uncommon in this phase to expect our partners to read our minds, to understand as soon as we speak and to agree with us. We expect them to channel our emotions and desires, to select the gift we crave, to intuit how we want to celebrate our birthday, what we want for dinner tonight, how much attention we want, how much space we need. But creating something together is better than wanting the same thing. How you handle your differences is more important than finding your similarities. In phase two, we ground our dreams in reality by establishing rhythms and routines that create the space to nurture the relationship slowly and carefully. Rhythms and routines. Instead of chasing the dream of what it might be to live happily ever after with this person, spend time getting to know them, building your connection. Dreams are an illusion. Reality is far more interesting. In corporate settings where systems are strong, I urge leaders to incorporate sentiment in order to soften the rigidity of organization and process. And in relationships, where sentiment is strong, I embed systems to help bring structure and order to the emotional landscape. Rhythms and routines help us maintain a steady pace that lets us get to know each other gradually and genuinely. We acknowledge that we are both looking for a long-term relationship and hoping this is it. When we establish rhythms and routines together, instead of trying to meet false expectations, our relationship is grounded in how much time we'll spend together and how we'll spend it. We don't have to wonder when the person we're interested in will call us next. We don't play games like waiting a certain number of days before returning their call. We also start to set healthy boundaries while observing how our partner responds to them. Boundaries can be physical. Some people choose to take their time becoming sexually intimate and they can also relate to time and emotions. A small survey conducted by High Touch Communications Inc. found that after work hours, most people expected friends, family, and romantic partners to respond to a text within five minutes. But when it came to work hours, they gave friends and family an hour but still expected a romantic partner to respond within five minutes. I've learned to give Radhi around five days, with a reminder. Clinical psychologist Seth Myers advises new couples to exercise caution. In Psychology Today, he writes that lots of physical interaction right away heightens emotions and can color how you see the other person. Looking at them through rose-colored glasses could make you overlook red flags that would be more apparent or concerning if you weren't under the influence of the bonding chemicals we release as a result of physical contact, especially sex. Plus, you're forcing emotional intimacy with someone 
you barely know. And as Myers points out, if you don't really know the person eliciting those intense emotional reactions, you may put yourself at risk. If the person is kind and good and wants the same things as you, there's no problem. If the person doesn't have the same relationship goals as you, you may end up feeling lonely and betrayed. He recommends that for at least the first month, you see one another no more than once a week. And if things are going well, then you can slowly dial up the frequency of your dates. When you encounter a new potential friend, for example, you probably don't rush to see that friend several times per week after you first meet, Myers writes. Why should the guidelines for starting a romantic relationship be so different? The time and space we spend apart enhances the time we spend together. We want to find a balance among time together, time alone, time with our own friends, and time with collective friends. In a week, you might decide to spend one night alone, three nights together, two nights with friends that you both know, and one night with your own friends. This gives you time together, time to decompress, time to experience other people's energy together, and time to decompress in a different way with your own friends. When you do this, you should tell your partner why it's important to you to structure your time this way. Merely saying, I need alone time, leaves them wondering what they've done wrong, while saying, I need alone time because I'm stressed out, gives them a chance to be supportive and understanding. The schedule I just shared is an example, but it gives you an idea of how to think about your own. Try this. Set a schedule. Together, work out how often you talk, message, and see each other. Find an easy rhythm and healthy ratio that works for both of you. Decide how you want to divvy up your free time. Not every week has to be the same, but when you have a sense of how you're going to spend your time, you don't feel that you're in a competition with other interests. Nights by yourself, nights together, nights with mutual friends or family, nights with your own friends. Instead of setting rhythms and routines, we often worry or wonder where the relationship is going or complain to our friends about it. We're afraid to have conversations with a partner because we don't want to put pressure on them or to be perceived as needy. But conversations about what feels right to both of you at this point are entirely appropriate. When you have these conversations, the other person may not respond the way you hoped. Their pace and commitment may be different from yours. This doesn't mean the relationship is doomed. It means you can proceed with more clarity. And if these topics scare someone off, you haven't made a mistake. You've saved yourself the weeks and months you might otherwise have spent waiting for the relationship to play out. Instead of wondering why they never call, do this. Set a time to connect rather than leaving it up to hope or chance. Instead of thinking they're too busy for you, discuss how busy slash available you are in the upcoming week. Instead of thinking they're moving too quickly, tell them you'd like to move at a slower pace 
but it doesn't mean you're not interested. Instead of thinking they're moving too slowly, tell them you want to make sure you've got the same aspirations. Instead of worrying because they haven't introduced you to their family or friends, learn about their closest relationships by asking questions and finding out who is important to them and why. Instead of wondering if they're seeing other people, ask them if they want to be exclusive and hear them out. In these conversations, you may not always like what you learn. If the person doesn't react or respond in the way you wanted, it doesn't mean this relationship won't work. It means you can move forward in one direction or another with clarity. Phase 3. Struggle and Growth We are meant to fall in love, be in love and stay in love. But we can't do any of that if we expect every day to be Valentine's Day. Trouble is inevitable. It comes when, as a couple, we inevitably discover the various ways in which we aren't aligned. In phase three, we confront those differences and disappointments and figure out if we want to put in the effort that resolving or living with them requires. When I was a monk, as you might imagine, we did a lot of self-reflection. And at one point, my teacher asked a group of us to rate how much we were struggling with our minds on a scale of 1 to 10. Our work was intense and we all gave ourselves pretty high struggle ratings. Then he said, Well, imagine if there were two minds trying to get along. Two different people from different households with their own beliefs, values, expectations and dreams. There is no way this experiment can run smoothly. Love means that you value your partner enough to confront difficult areas. Relationships are masterfully designed to annoy us. It's easier on your own when there's nobody around to question you or bear witness to your flaws. But that's not why you're in a relationship. Bringing awareness to your relationship is uncomfortable. Many couples bump up against an opportunity for realization and feel it as a burden. We expect love to flow naturally, but this is extremely rare and often it means that we're not taking on the tougher issues. We need to make mistakes, identify what we need to change and work on doing better. This is where we grow as individuals and together. Many of these challenges are simple and domestic. For example, in my house growing up, we ate dinner, had dessert, hung out and talked for a while, then cleaned up. In Radhi's house, they ate dinner, cleaned up, had dessert, and only when everything was all done would they relax into conversation. When we first started entertaining as a couple, after dinner, Radhi would clean up on her own and I felt guilty that I wasn't helping. I always said that I'd clean a bit later and I meant it. But she was locked into the ritual from her upbringing and I was locked into mine. Someone might say they'll clean up later and their partner might believe they're just being lazy. But more often differences like this originate in backgrounds, cultures and habits. The small hurdles are issues like she snores, he's always late, they would rather watch TV 
when I want to go to a museum. I can't stand her best friend. He wants to spend every holiday at his parents' home. They have three cats and I'm allergic. And there may be bigger hurdles like he has massive student debt. She has a temper that scares me. We have a long-distance relationship and neither of us wants to move. She doesn't want to have children and I do. Disagreements large and small may challenge your confidence in your bond. You may feel, I thought I loved you, but in that situation, there are three routes you can take. Two of them lead to important realizations. You can leave the relationship, in which case you realize this person doesn't suit your priorities. You can work through the issue together and grow, in which case you realize you're feeling positive enough about your bond to evolve together. Or you can stay together without changing anything, in which case you don't realize anything. I advise you not to make the third choice. This phase is very important when it comes to defining love. Because you either realize that something is a deal breaker for you, or that you're willing to go through the growth that facing the issue involves. And if it's the latter, you will come through the experience with a stronger, more resilient love. We will discuss relationship challenges like these in more depth in Rules 5 and 6. Phase 4. Trust. After we've overcome a challenge together, we grow. We learn to tolerate, adjust and adapt. The growth that we do together builds into trust. Evaluating the breadth and depth of your trust for someone is a way of understanding and defining your love in the fourth and highest phase. Sometimes we assume trust is binary. Either we trust someone or we don't. But trust increases gradually through actions, thoughts and words. We shouldn't trust someone instantly just because they're kind to us. We give them our trust because little by little, day after day, we have shared more of ourselves and seen what they do with our honesty. All of the earlier phases build on one another to get us here. Trust begins with ourselves. We need to be trustworthy. This means aligning what we think, say and do. When we think something, we express it and then we carry through with the idea. This means we can trust ourselves. So if I feel like I need a night to myself, I communicate that to my partner. And then I take the time. I feel the benefit of the gift I've given myself and I trust myself to take good care of myself. My partner sees me following through on my ideas, observes the results and recognizes my trustworthiness. Then I do the same for my partner. I follow through on my promises to them. I show them that I'm trustworthy and in doing so inspire them to respond with an equal level of trust. We trust people more when they make us feel safe, when they make healthy decisions, when we feel like they conduct their life based on values that we agree with. To evaluate the depth and breadth of your trust for your partner, consider these three aspects. Physical trust, mental trust, 
and emotional trust. Physical trust is when you feel safe and cared for in their presence. They want to be with you, they're present and attentive, and being around them feels good. Mental trust is when you trust their mind, their ideas, their thoughtfulness. You may not agree with every decision they make, but you trust the way they make decisions. Emotional trust is when you trust their values and who they are as a human. Do they treat you well? Are they supportive? Do you trust how they behave, not just with you, but with the other people in their life, from close friends to a waiter? It's okay if you don't have absolute trust for your partner across this spectrum, and they can make mistakes that challenge your trust. When you identify weak spots, consider how significant the weakness is. How does it affect you? If you don't trust them in areas that are important to you, you can give your partner grace and maintain trust by sharing honestly around the issues. It's impossible to have trust if there is dishonesty, secrets, or gaslighting. Trust builds very slowly and needs to be nurtured and sustained. Think of it as growing by percentage points. Each time someone thinks, says, and does the same thing, trust grows by one percentage point. In the beginning, you trust them to speak the truth about whom they're with and what they're doing and what they think. Each time they do, trust grows another point. Then as we ask them to understand our emotions and they listen, the points add up. When we share our faults, trust grows further. But trust fluctuates. If they fail to understand us, or they mislead us, or they betray us, our level of trust sinks and needs to be rebuilt. When we overcome a challenge together, trust grows again. We begin to trust them with our plans and dreams. And finally, we trust them enough to share our trauma with them. When our trust is high, we feel a love that is physically and emotionally safe and secure. Our partner becomes the person we turn to with good news and bad news, knowing that they'll be on our side and by our side, helping us to weather challenges and celebrate successes. Try this. Daily Trust One of my favorite ways to show trust every day is to notice and recognize when someone follows through on a promise. Often we reward people with thanks and gratitude when they surprise us with a nice gesture. Your partner prepares a delicious dinner that you didn't expect and you heap on the gratitude. We do the same when they do something that they rarely do. But trust comes with quiet reliability. What about the partner who makes dinner for us regularly? We should show our appreciation for the efforts that they make daily. The more you reward it, the more they'll repeat it. And we build their trust in us the same way by showing up. This week, make an effort to thank your partner for the effort and energy they consistently bring to your partnership. Be specific. Instead of saying, thanks for listening, you can say, I know I always come home and unload my emotions from work on you. I really appreciate how you listen and give me helpful advice. 
Love brings us through all of these phases over and over again. We never stop deepening our faith in each other. We endlessly find our attraction renewed. We work to remove impurities. Love means that we're happy to go through this cycle together. Now the dreams that you had in phase two are real. They may be different. They're probably better than anything you dared to dream. Instead of fantasizing in your head, you can try out new dreams together. Try this. Build realistic dreams together. Establish a monthly check-in. Commit an hour every month to talk about your relationship. This gives you an opportunity to reaffirm what's working and redirect what's not working. Identify a highlight. What are you grateful for? This helps you both know what's going well. Identify a challenge. What are you struggling with? This helps you see what needs work. Find something to work toward together this coming month. It could be a date night, a birthday celebration, a trip, a plan to redo a room in the home. You can look through a website to research a vacation you want to take. This way, you're building your dreams together. Together, you're working on how you want your relationship to look and feel. To experience all that relationships have to offer means facing the challenges and rewards of every stage of love. Sometimes people jump from relationship to relationship because they're trying to avoid the challenges that love requires. You could date someone new every three months and have a lot of fun. But there is no growth in the cycle of just flirting, hooking up and ditching. It is this ongoing growth and understanding that helps us sustain the fun of love, the connection of love the trust of love, the reward of love. If we never commit, we'll never get to love. Once in a place of trust and commitment, you and your partner reveal yourselves to each other and share more of yourselves than you allow anyone else to see. This exchange puts you in a unique position. We don't usually think of relationships in terms of learning and teaching. But that is exactly what we will explore in the next chapter. How to learn from and teach our partner. Rule 4. Your partner is your guru. Love does not consist of gazing at each other, but in looking outward together in the same direction. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry There is an old Zen story about a young man who, looking for a teacher, decided to visit two ashrams. At the first, he approached the guru there, bowed and said, I am looking for a guru. Do you think you can teach me? The guru smiled. Of course. I think you would be a wonderful student and I would be delighted to share my wisdom with you. Then the young man visited the second ashram, approached the guru there 
and bowed. I am looking for a guru. Do you think you can teach me? The guru bowed back to him but shook his head. Really, I know very little, he said. But if you'd like to come back later, perhaps we can sit together and watch the sunset. The young man smiled and nodded, then chose the second guru. When I introduced the Vedic life stages, I mentioned that each of them is referred to as an ashram. Ashrams are often associated with a revered teacher, a guru. Since ancient times, people have traveled from all over the world to learn from spiritual teachers, such as Ramakrishna or Neem Karoli Baba, or to Dharamshala to learn from the Dalai Lama in his temple there. A guru is beyond a teacher, guide or coach. They're like the captain of a ship who helps you cross the turbulent ocean of life with deep compassion and friendship. In the ashram, the teacher sat at the back of the classroom and listened to the students. They asked for feedback after they taught their classes. We weren't assigned our gurus, we chose them. A single teacher to take us on as their student and protege. And they chose us. In school, before I went to the ashram, I struggled with authority. Maybe it was the fault of my ego, but I felt judged and criticized by my teachers. In contrast, the teachers I met as a monk were full of compassion, empathy and humility. Early in my monkhood, I was in London with my guru, Radhanath Swami. We were staying in quarters close to the temple and I was seeing to his meals and other needs. Nonetheless, every day the first thing he did when he saw me was to kneel down before me, touching his head to the ground. He was nearly 70 years old and I was only 22, the new kid on the block, but he was paying respect to the soul or spiritual force within me. He would never say, you're my disciple, so do this. He never played the guru card. And I would never say, you're my guru, you should be figuring this out for me. I never played the student card. Each of us approached the other with awe and reverence. A committed romantic relationship highlights this awe and respect in a different way because there isn't one guru and one student. You are both gurus and students for each other. We don't usually think about our partners as teachers or guides, but none of us can see ourselves or the world clearly on our own. We know from our reflections in solitude that each of us sees the world and each other through a different telescope with a limited range. Psychology researcher Jeremy Dean at University College London says that typically we form our concept of how others see us based on how we see ourselves, which is inherently flawed. From the view inside our heads, we are the center of our own world and everything we experience is in some way related to us. Psychologists call this egocentric bias. That's not narcissism, it's just what comes from viewing the world through a single lens. Others see us differently, through their perceptions. Granted, our partners have their own biases, but learning to see ourselves through their eyes 
both expands and fine-tunes our own perception of ourselves. Your partner is like a mirror held in front of you. This mirror isn't meant to make you feel bad and shouldn't have that effect. When you can't hide from someone, this makes you more transparent and aware of what you need to work on. There is no judgment or force but support and encouragement while you work on yourself. Your partner should be someone you want to learn with and learn from and learn through and vice versa. We learn with someone when we try something new together and reflect on it afterward. We learn from someone when they have expertise they share with us or use to guide us. Learning through someone is the hardest. In living with another person's mind, heart and energy, we grow through observing their behavior toward us. We need to have the attention and patience to process their behavior and figure out the lesson it's teaching us. This is particularly hard if they're annoying us. We assume it's their fault instead of realizing that their actions and our reactions are educating us about ourselves. At the same time, we offer lessons to our partner through our behavior and actions toward them. This shared journey is the heart of the Grihastha Ashram, the second stage of life. As a guru, we think about how our actions impact our partner. A guru offers guidance without judgment, wisdom without ego, love without expectation. Being a guru for your partner doesn't mean imparting wisdom to them. That sounds unpleasant at best, but it does require patience, understanding, curiosity, creativity, and self-control. You can't grow these qualities in a vacuum. Your partner is the best person to help you learn them. Although monks' relationships with one another aren't romantic, living in a communal space meant we couldn't hide much from one another. Everyone knew if you kept yourself clean. Everyone knew the quality of your meditation. Long-term relationships are similar, but each person is even more exposed than we monks were. Your partner knows everything about you, the good and the bad. Anyone you encounter might have something to teach you, but not everyone is your guru. Our best friends, closest family and fellow monks, for those of us who have them, can't help us learn these lessons because they can't see us as completely as the people we love romantically. A close colleague might appreciate my successes more than my wife, but never have met my family. A friend might be better company at a soccer game, but I don't want to go home to him every night. A roommate like the monks will certainly see most of the good and bad, but might not be invested enough to help me work through my challenges. My friends and family might have varying levels of respect for my spiritual practice, but Radhi is the one who knows if I actually meditated this morning. She sees me more often and in more contexts than anyone else. Nobody is better positioned to help me become better. When I was fortunate enough to have a breakthrough in my career about a year into our marriage, Radhi didn't seem to care very much. She didn't celebrate it. 
She had agreed to move with me to New York because she believed in me. But there I was having this great moment and when she didn't seem impressed, I started wondering, why doesn't my wife respect me? I was sure she loved me. We met when I had nothing. She had other options. She told me she loved me in many ways. But my material success wasn't having the effect on her that I expected. And then I thought about how earlier that same year, when we were four months from going broke, I had told her I'd figure it out. Her response was, I trust you. I realized I didn't want or need her to love me for my achievements. I didn't need her to validate me. It's easy to respect success. She was offering me something greater, her unconditional support and faith in me. That meant more than her celebrating my external success ever could. Radhi's disregard for material success helped me develop the quality of loving myself for my values. She taught me this without meaning to. She never said, I love you for your values. I grappled with this all on my own. This is how we are each other's gurus without training, trying, or even realizing we're doing it. Radhi didn't even realize I'd learned the lesson until years later I told her. I was so lucky that she fell in love with me when we had nothing. If I had already had a certain level of recognition, I definitely would have made the mistake of wanting a wife who would appreciate my success more. Relationships are for growth. If we choose a partner we can grow with, then they are always teaching us. Researchers Arthur and Elaine Aron developed self-expansion theory, which states that relationships, especially the one with our partner, enable us to live a bigger, richer life by expanding our sense of self. Self-expansion theory says we're motivated to partner with someone who brings to the relationship things we don't already have, such as different skills. You know how to unclog a drain. Personality traits. You're the life of the party. And perspectives. You grew up overseas. Our partner expands our sense of who we are because they expand the resources to which we have access. The most common complaints I hear people make about their partners are in essence that they don't do what they want them to do. She doesn't do her share of the household chores. He's rude to my parents. They never give me compliments. He forgets my birthday. But if you think your partner should do what you want, when you want, I want to change how you look at your partner. That's not a relationship. That's ownership. Ownership is born of control. We definitely don't want that dynamic with our partner. A good partnership is transactional. Transactions are part of getting along with another person. We figure out schedules, we coordinate responsibilities, we balance our lives. But a great relationship needs more than transactions. It needs growth. Love is not just compliance or trade. Love is working through it together. We touched on this in the last rule when we looked at the third stage of love, disappointment and revelation. 
In this chapter, we'll talk about how you learn from each other most by overcoming challenges together. Life becomes more enjoyable when you know each other, watch each other grow and grow together. We say we want to grow old together, but we forget to give significance to the growing part. The guru-slash-student dynamic is what makes you feel like you're connected to your partner. You have to put effort into a relationship in order to get something out of it, but it's not a vending machine. You can't put in effort and expect an immediate guaranteed reward. What you invest will have to be heartfelt and true, and what you receive will be illuminating. Try this. Assess whether your partner is someone you can learn and grow with. Even when we're just getting to know someone, we can spot signs that they're more than a fun companion, that they would be a good partner to grow with. If you ask yourself these questions, you'll be surprised at how much you already know about your partner's capacity to learn with you. For each question, rate whether your partner does it always, sometimes, or never. 1. Do they like learning about themselves? If someone isn't curious about learning about themselves, they may struggle to learn about you. If someone has a passion for growing, they'll help you grow. Do they like to try new things? Are they self-aware? Are they open to therapy or coaching or other ways of self-development? Do they like having conversations about how they make decisions or choices? 2. Do they understand their own emotions? Is your partner good at understanding and expressing their emotions? Do they talk about their day on a superficial level only, or do they share emotions in a real way? When they tell a story, is their emotional state part of it? 3. Do they try to understand you? Are they curious about you? Self-awareness often but not always leads to curiosity about others. Do they use their emotional skills to better understand you? If they haven't gotten to a place where they can expand their radius of care and love, it means they are still in brahmacharya. They are still a student of themselves and not ready to learn with you. 4. Can they entertain themselves? It's easier to learn with another person if they love solitude. It means they have their own journey and their own path, which allows you to travel your own path beside them. 5. Are they open to finding new ways of solving problems? For example, if they're having trouble with a colleague, do they talk to you or a friend about it? Are they willing to talk to the colleague to propose a compromise or to shift gears by asking the person out to lunch. Learning and growing means having the determination and flexibility to address issues from new angles. That inclination is transferable to a relationship. 6. Do they support others in their growth? Look to see if they make the effort to support a friend, a sibling or a mentee. Is helping others a part of their life? This shows you that they can extend their radius of love and care 
as is necessary in Grihastha. 7. Do they inspire you to be better and more? A partner can make you feel ambitious, not to impress them, but because they believe in your abilities and give you the confidence to follow your interests and inclinations. Your answers to this assessment don't make or break your relationship. Look at the questions to which you responded never or sometimes. This tells you the areas where you need to take the lead. If your partner never spends time in solitude, understand that this is something you'll have to either accept or encourage them to start in ways that appeal to them. You might come up with activities that will help them spend time reflecting. See the Try This exercises in Rule 1. Or they might have low self-awareness that will impact your relationship. If they don't try to understand you, you have to gently educate them about how you work, saying things like, when I'm tired after work, I have a shorter fuse. Let's save figuring out our finances for the weekend. When we enroll in a class or rent an Airbnb, we research it before we commit. Exercises like this are research into our relationship. A partner who doesn't check all these boxes could still develop into someone with whom you want to learn and grow, if you're open to teaching each other. Become a better guru. In the Guru and Disciple book, Kripamoya Das talks about how traditional spiritual gurus and their students help one another. He lists 14 qualities of the guru that were first described by the medieval philosopher Vedanta Deshika. I've included the Sanskrit descriptions and Kripamoya Das's translations of some of these qualities to show how the qualities of the teacher and the student that I describe are grounded in scripture. Do not lead, serve. One of the guru qualities that Kripamoya Das lists is Dhamba Asuyadi Muktam, which means exhibits no inauspicious characteristics such as egoism or jealousy. Remember how my guru, Radhanath Swami, bowed down on the floor in front of me. A guru doesn't lord his position over his student or try to control them. Zen master Shunryu Suzuki was set to visit the Cambridge Buddhist Association in Massachusetts, arriving on a Wednesday evening. The day before, several members started cleaning the house in preparation for the visit. They were cleaning the meditation room when the doorbell rang. It was Suzuki Roshi arriving a day early. When he saw what they were doing, he smiled, tied up the sleeves of his robes and joined in the cleaning. The next day, he found a ladder and started scrubbing the windows. A guru doesn't hesitate to play any position if it helps their student. There is no ego involved. The guru is honored and grateful to support another. A real guru doesn't want power but empowers their partner. The guru is not trying to command, demand or force their partner to do anything or be a certain way. Instead of saying, you should do this, the guru says, 
I'd love to share this idea with you. Or, have you ever thought of it this way? In the ashram, if a monk didn't wake up on time, their guru wouldn't yell, What's wrong with you? Why didn't you show up at morning meditation? Rather, they might say, Did you sleep well? Is there any way I can help you? The guru is focused on the behavior's cause, not its consequence. In the Marvel movie Doctor Strange, Surgeon Stephen Strange is a self-important narcissist. Then, an accident severely damages his hands, leaving him unable to perform surgery. Desperate to regain his abilities, he travels to Nepal in search of a teacher called the Ancient One. When Strange arrives, he sees an older man with glasses and a long goatee sitting reading a book. Thank you, Ancient One, for seeing me, he says. The woman pouring Strange's tea stands up. You're welcome, she says. His education has begun. The Ancient One shows him a chakra chart and he dismisses it, saying he's seen it in gift shops. Then, after forcing Strange to experience alternate dimensions, the Ancient One asks, Have you ever seen that before in a gift shop? Strange in awe says, Teach me. The Ancient One just says no. Our Guru's powers aren't so vast and our lessons may not be so succinct, but the point is that when your partner sees you aren't trying to control or assert authority over them, you bolster their trust and confidence. Set a good example. Another guru quality that Kripamoya Das lists is Thiradiyam, meaning that the mind remains firmly fixed even in difficult situations. This means the guru should try to behave in an exemplary way. Radhi wanted me to go to the gym and to eat right, but she didn't nag me about it. Rather, she guided me to a healthier lifestyle by living it herself. She doesn't cut corners in her own practice, and I wouldn't have switched my habits if she hadn't been so consistent in her own commitment. The Guru doesn't model good habits because they're trying to preach or instruct or brag, but because it makes them joyful and happy. I have a client who complained that his wife spent too much money on bags and shoes. But when I asked him about his own spending, he admitted that he had just bought a fancy new car. She'd have to buy hundreds of shoes and bags to come close to the cost of that car. So he was imposing standards on her that he wasn't adhering to himself. If he was worried about their finances, he could suggest that they both start monitoring their spending habits, but he couldn't impose his values on her spending without reigning in his own. The guru will never ask the student to do something they're not comfortable doing themselves. They lead by example. St. Francis said, it is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. When you lead by example, you come to understand how difficult it is to grow because you're doing the hard work of growth yourself. This gives you compassion and empathy toward your partner 
rather than judgment and expectations. Support their goals, not yours. Dayalam is the Guru's quality of having spontaneous compassion and kindness for students. I expand this to suggest that the Guru should make sure they support the student's own path. There is a story in Bhakti scripture about a stone bridge being built over the sea between India and Sri Lanka. All the animals help build the bridge. The strong monkey god Hanuman is chucking massive rocks and boulders into the growing structure. He notices that the squirrel, eager to do his share, is throwing little pebbles in the same direction. Hanuman sneers at the squirrel. How is that even going to make a difference? Then, Lord Ram, the virtuous prince overseeing the project, steps in. He says, You are each doing the most you can according to your capacity. The rock is equal to the pebble. He points out that pebbles help the boulders stay in place and thanks the squirrel for his efforts. We take pride in noticing our partner's potential and urging them to fulfill it, but we don't want to impose our goals on them. Our goal is simply to help them get to the next step in their journey, not the next step in our vision of what their journey should be. If our partner wants to learn to meditate, we might find an app or a nearby center where they can begin their practice. But we don't tell them how often they should meditate or what they should expect from it. If our partner has a conflict with a family member, we might direct them to resources to help make the peace or rearrange our plans to give them the time to do it. But we're not going to plan a vacation with the relative to force the issue. The same is true for getting in shape or work goals or making friends in a new neighborhood. We want to help them become the best version of the person they want to be. We support their dreams. We genuinely want to see them grow. But if we're trying to get them to do something we think would be best for them, they're not likely to trust our insights. When Sokeon Shigetsu Sasaki, a Japanese monk who went on to found the Buddhist Society of America, had just started studying Zen Buddhism, he met legendary teacher Soyen Shaku, the first Zen Buddhist master to teach in the United States. Shaku had heard that Sokeon was a woodcarver. Carve me a Buddha, he said to the young monk. A few weeks later, Sokeon presented Shaku with a wooden statue of the Buddha, which Shaku tossed out the window. As Sokeon later said, it seemed an unkind action, but it wasn't. He'd meant for me to carve the Buddha in myself. Shaku didn't want a gift from Sokeon. He wanted Sokeon to do something for himself. The Guru does not project their goals, ambitions and timelines onto the student. The Guru lets the student show them how to be supportive in the way that they need and want. But I also suggest you don't throw anything your partner gives you out the window. Try this. Help your partner 
know their goals. Instead of telling your partner what their goals should be and how to reach them, ask them three questions. One, what's really important to you right now? Two, what do you need to get there? Three, is there anything I can do to help you? In this way, you let your partner lead themselves to their answers. Understanding your partner's goals without editing them to suit yours is one of the greatest gifts you can give someone. When we hear other people's goals, we automatically put them through our filter and lens. That's too small or too big. Your perspective is important, but we don't want to project or predict. We don't want to share our own limitations or aspirations. Make sure to listen to their reasons, what motivates them and why. You will learn from this too. Guide them to learn in their own way. In Kripa Moyadas's list, the guru is a friend and guide, always seeking their welfare as a well-wisher, Dirga Bandhum. To be a good guru, watch and access how your partner learns and determines the best way to present whatever it is you want them to learn. If they don't like reading, suggest podcasts. If that doesn't resonate with them, see if there's a course they'd like to take. I've had clients tell me my partner doesn't practice meditation or mindfulness enough. I am trying to make them read your book. My question would be, what did they enjoy? Basketball? I have an amazing interview with Kobe Bryant. Music? Jennifer Lopez and Alicia Keys have both been on the podcast. Find a way to connect your partner to your interests through their interests. Try this. Identify your partner's learning style. Which learning style best describes your partner? Hearing. Your partner likes to take in new information through their ears. They like to listen to podcasts, audiobooks, or TED Talks. Vision. Your partner likes to watch someone demonstrate a skill or to follow a diagram. Your partner learns best from YouTube or Masterclass. Thought. Your partner likes to absorb information in their head, so they might like to read a book on a topic of interest, taking notes to put it in their own words as they go. Motion. Your partner learns by doing. They'll want to take a workshop where they get to try out new skills as they acquire them. Match your partner to a learning style. To do this, first ask them if they know how they best learn. If they don't know, ask them when they last learned something new and what form it came in. If you're still drawing a blank, observe what they spend their spare time doing. Do they watch documentaries? Listen to audiobooks? You can even help them find a way to test all the approaches and see which one they prefer. Then give them guidance for how to learn using the formats I suggested for each style. You can give them a gift to inspire them, do some research for them, or experiment together. Gurus look for creative ways to share ideas for their partner rather than forcing them or pushing them. Wanting to help our partner 
should not be confused with wanting to control our partner. One of the most common ways we try to control our partner is to impose our timeline on them. You may do something in a day while your partner takes a week. Your timeline is not correct. A guru moves at the time and pace of the student without a deadline. If I said to Radhi, "Let's talk about your goals right now," she would shut down. But if I said to her, "On Sunday, let's go to a park and write in our journals about what we want from this year, then talk about it together," she would be delighted. I try to offer her suggestions that match her rhythm. Let your student set their own pace. And when they don't reach their goals and feel sad, don't say, "I told you to do it earlier." Be patient and thoughtful as they do the work, offering your time and resources and supporting them while giving them the confidence to do it on their own. Don't do it for them, but provide encouragement and guidance in a supportive way. Through this restraint, you're developing patience and compassion. This is how as a guru you yourself are growing as you help your partner grow. Don't criticize, judge or abuse. Kripamoya Das describes the guru as being free from deceitful speech, always telling the truth, satyavacham. I take this in a slightly different direction where I ask you to be mindful of the way you speak to your partner so you don't mislead them or shut them down it's not what you say it's how you say it telling your partner they're sloppy won't change them stop playing playstation won't work think about the classroom where you would best learn it is welcoming accessible and there is a natural flow of conversation and activity nobody wants a teacher who yells at the class or sends students to stand in the corner we want students who respect teachers and teachers who respect students a peaceful sustainable exchange researchers have identified critical feedback as one of the most common triggers that send us into a fixed mindset which stanford professor carol dweck describes in her book mindset as when we see our qualities as fixed traits that can't be changed when we're in the fixed mindset we focus on the perception that we've been judged to be somehow incompetent rather than seeing the growth opportunity that the criticism might provide when our partner says when you do the laundry all our clothes end up wrinkled we hear something like you're inadequate and incapable as a guru we must pay attention to how we give feedback so it's more likely to be received in the spirit we intend something more like i really appreciate your help with the laundry i realized that when i let the laundry sit in the dryer for a while before folding it it ends up wrinkled so now if i have to run an errand or do something else i don't start the dryer until i'm back you might try another approach but the main thing is neither of us likes ironing You think we could try that or do you have a better idea? Yes, communicating this way takes a lot more words. And yes, it requires more effort to frame your feedback this way. But it's worth it 
because it's more likely to keep the other person engaged and responsive to your criticism. Gurus don't use anger, harsh words or fear to inspire their students. They realize that fear is a good motivator in the short term, but over the long term, it erodes trust. Criticism is lazy communication. It's not constructive, compassionate or collaborative. Look for ways to communicate so that the person can consume, digest and apply your input effectively. Offer them a love sandwich where you deliver a piece of constructive criticism between two tasty slices of positive feedback. Give suggestions instead of criticism. For example, my client's husband was struggling with unreasonable demands from his boss. She wanted to say, well, you let them walk all over you, but that would injure his ego and hurt his feelings. Instead, she reminded him that he was very talented, but only human and suggested that he talk to his boss not in terms of what he couldn't get done, but what he could get done in the allotted time. While his boss was unsympathetic and unyielding, my client's husband thanked her for supporting him and on further discussion, they decided that after he finished his project, he would start looking for another job. Imagine you're taking a long-awaited vacation and your partner booked the Airbnb for the wrong date. Instead of berating them for their incompetence, remember all they did to plan this trip. Don't say, you messed this up and you're going to figure it out. Instead, offer to book a hotel for the night while they sort out the Airbnb. Remember, you're trying to nourish your partner's joy. You highlight the good, you help create a path, you amplify their potential. Instead of criticizing in public, you compliment in public and in private. Instead of, you never do X, you're so bad at Y, criticizing what they do wrong, say this, I appreciate it when you do X, acknowledging what they do right. Instead of saying, if you ever do that again, I'm leaving you, say, this is how it makes me feel when you do that. Instead of saying, did you see what X's partner did for them? Say, I really appreciate when you do X for me. Instead of saying, this is your fault, so you fix it. Say, I know you're struggling with this. Can I help you? Instead of saying, you've changed, you were never like this before. Say, it's normal that we're changing and having to reset expectations. Become a better student. Some of us find it easier to lead than to be led, particularly when our partners aren't skilled and patient gurus. But even in those circumstances, we have the opportunity to learn from our partner. What if they just sit around all day? Well, maybe it irks you to see your partner relax because you don't allow yourself to take a break. Your partner is unconsciously teaching you that you need to give yourself downtime. And if our partner criticizes us or isn't inclined to help us grow, we must be the kind of student who by our behavior and qualities brings out the best in our guru. My guru at the ashram said, 
that if a teacher was a 10 out of 10, then the student might only be a 1 out of 10 because the teacher would constantly uplift them. But if the teacher was a 1 out of 10, the student would have to rise to be a 10 out of 10 in order to learn from the teacher. In other words, if you approach your studies diligently enough with an open mind and heart, you can learn even more from a mediocre teacher than you might from a great one. Be open-minded and curious. Kripamoya Das also cites 15 qualities of the good disciple. One of them is Tattva Bodha Abhilasi, meaning has an eagerness to learn. The Buddhist term Shoshin means beginner's mind. We want to come to our relationship with the open willingness of a new student no matter how long we've been together. Zen master Shunryu Suzuki said, In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. As a student, being open to the new means that when your partner makes suggestions, inviting you to explore new ground, you're receptive. If your guru offers you bad advice or presents it harshly, avoid the understandable temptation to dismiss it or react with anger. Instead, explore the possibility that your partner might actually have some wisdom to share by asking them the right questions. Questions that aren't rhetorical or condescending, but rather are sincere efforts to understand the idea. You might ask, can you help me with specific ideas? Or, if I wanted to take your suggestion, where would I begin? Or, could you explain that to me step by step? Or, I would love your advice, can we discuss this when we're both in a better space? There's an old saying, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. It's a symbiotic relationship. Practice humility. To ask the right questions, one needs intelligence but also humility. Humility doesn't mean to be meek and weak. It means being open to learning and honest with ourselves and others about our strengths and weaknesses. Kripamoya Das described the student as Tyaktamana, humble and prideless. Indeed, humility is essential for love in general because it keeps the ego, love's enemy, at bay. Ego and pride end more relationships than anything else because most misunderstandings are based on ego or pride. Ego mires us in the false belief that we're always right, that we know best and the other person is wrong. This belief makes it impossible to learn from our partner. If you watch Nathan Chen skating in the Olympics, you don't think, I'm such a bad skater, I'm small and worthless. You recognize and appreciate his grace and skill and the years of effort he put into his art. Humility is honoring other people's skills, abilities and growth rather than dishonoring your own. Try this. Appreciate your partner's knowledge. Next time you're talking with your partner, notice an expertise they have that you usually take for granted. How can you find something extraordinary 
in what you already know about your partner. Maybe they think before they make a decision. Maybe they always write thoughtful thank you notes. Maybe they consistently offer you good advice when you don't know exactly how to ask for something at work. Look for skills your partner has that you've never acknowledged. When you notice one, share it with them. This appreciation is nourishment for your partner's strengths. Be a good translator. Kripamoya Das said that the student controls mind and speech, danta. Stephen Covey, author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, might agree with that guidance. He said, most people don't listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. There are three steps to responding effectively when your partner shares an issue they have with you. First, echo what they said. Then say what you heard, explaining it back to them in your own words. Finally, when you're sure that you both understand the issue at hand, tell them how you feel. We tend to respond with what we feel first, using what they said to justify our feelings. Say your partner tells you, I was embarrassed when you didn't introduce me to your friends. They're telling you how they feel. If you respond first with how you feel, you might say, well, you never include me in conversations with your friends. But if you tell them, I'm hearing that you're upset with me, why did it make you feel that way? You give your partner an opportunity to make sure that they're explaining themselves effectively. You're showing them what they sound like and now they can be more focused on how they speak and share what they're saying. At the same time, you're clarifying what you're trying to do in the relationship, to connect and make the other person feel understood. Your guru can take a cue from the tone you set. Try this. Introduce a new idea. Practice your communication skills by bringing up a new topic and being attentive to what your partner says, listening to the points they make and helping them uncover and articulate the feelings, needs and wants underneath their words. Pick an open-ended topic that you haven't discussed before, one that might inspire you both to imagine something new you might do together. Here are some suggested ideas. What if we both quit our jobs and moved? What if we traveled for a whole year? If we can retire one day, what would we do with our time? If we had a million dollars to give away, who would we give it to and why? Here are some questions to explore. You can each answer these questions, but your focus should be on listening to your partner's responses. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when I ask this question? Why does what you said appeal to you? Then show your partner that you heard them. Explain to them what you heard them say their idea would be. Discuss what preferences and priorities you think might underlie that idea. Tell them what you learned about them in this conversation. Talk about whether there's a viable version of what they wanted that you could bring into your lives now. For example, 
If the question were how would you spend a year of travel, perhaps your inclination would be to move to the south of France to eat pain au chocolat for a year. But your partner wants to plan a bike trip across the U.S. You can recognize their longing for physical activity. Maybe they are also expressing a desire to experience travel at a slower pace, or to spend time camping along the way. Once you've understood more about their fantasy, you could consider getting them a bike for their birthday, or maybe you'll plan a weekend cycling trip together. This is practice for how you can listen to your partner instead of listening to reply when you encounter more challenging, emotionally loaded topics. Appreciate the guru. Kripamoya Das said that the student is Krita Vid Shishya, grateful for knowledge. Notice and appreciate it when your partner is offering you help without reward or return. We don't often stop to thank them for their constant presence, their willingness to help, and the simple small things they do. Take time to thank them and notice what they get right and do well, even if it seems simple and easy. Showing gratitude like this creates a feedback loop, where they feel grateful for your appreciation and are inspired to continue in their guru-like ways. Try this: acknowledge the guru's skills. Think about your partner's skills as a guru. What are their strengths? Have you taken the time to acknowledge them? And if you perceive some of these areas as weaknesses, is there anything you can learn about yourself from your reaction? Find the areas where your partner is your guru and thank them. You can thank them out of the blue or the next time they show these qualities. One, leads through service. Your partner is willing to play any role. In order to help you, even if it's not their field of expertise, maybe they function as a manager, an accountant, an IT technician, a food delivery person. Do they help you out of compassion rather than telling you what to do? Two, leads by example. What do they commit to and do without fail? If you can't find anything, you're probably not looking hard enough. Three. Helps you to your goals, not theirs. Your partner allows you to be yourself. They don't force or urge you to be different. They may not be serving or helping you, but when they don't force you to become someone you're not, that's a form of support. Four, offers guidance without criticism, judgment, or abuse. When you've fallen short on your goals or made a mistake, your partner supports you. And encourages you without pressuring you. Students need to be acknowledged as well. You can do the same exercise for the qualities of a student. Your guru is not your god. Alongside the openness of being a student comes perhaps the most important quality to your relationship with your guru: to maintain your sense of self. Just because you learn from them doesn't mean you shape yourself to their ideal and stop learning from anyone else. It doesn't mean you stop going to other people for different activities and insights. Your partner is your guru, not your god. They help you become better, but they aren't better than you. 
It's normal to take on some characteristics of our partners. Studies have found that couples start to adopt the same mannerisms, to sound alike, and even to eat the same quantity of food. Some merging of habits is inevitable, but we want to retain our individuality within the relationship. We want to take on positive qualities of our partner without becoming them or their assistant. You are always writing your story. When you meet someone, you start co-writing with them. The stories intertwine. In the Vedic scriptures, this is described as your karma being intertwined, but not your soul. I think of this as co-writing your karma together. Karma is the activity in your life, but your soul is your identity. You might change and grow together, mixing your karmas, mixing the energy of two families and two communities, but don't lose your identity. Remember your own personality, values and goals. Don't lose the thread of your own story. Spend time in solitude. Don't cancel plans with friends and family. Pursue your own interests, not just your partner's. This is not slighting, ignoring or betraying your partner. It's fueling your growth in ways that they can't, which means you'll have even more to offer them. And if you have no more growing left to do together, you can take time apart. That's okay. We must break up if our partner becomes abusive toward us. A guru would never teach through abuse. Abuse only teaches you to fear your partner, to suppress your instincts, to ignore your own pain and to feed someone else's ego. Emotional, mental and physical abuse should be deal breakers for everyone. And that's clear when you think about your partner as your guru. Why would your guru hurt you? How can you grow when you are hurt and scared? And if you're suffering in any of these ways but blame yourself, try asking yourself, Am I learning from this person? Are they learning from me? Is this the way I want to learn? If the answers are no, then deciding to leave is the greatest gift you can give yourself. And there are many organizations that can help you do so safely. The Guru's Greatest Gift We have heard people say of couples, they grew apart. But we never say, they grew together. Yet if you are not growing apart, that is most likely what you are doing. Quietly but surely helping each other observe, learn and grow in all directions. The discomfort of change is offset by the delight of shared understanding. The growth that a guru and student cultivate keeps a relationship exciting and new even as it matures and you grow more familiar with each other. In the next chapter, we will talk about the most important way a guru can help a student grow in pursuing their purpose. Rule 5 Purpose comes first. The meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. David Viscott Dharma, the compass 
Many years ago, I asked a client and his partner to write down their priorities in order. His list said one, kids, two, you, meaning his wife, three, work. Her list said one, me, two, kids, three, you, meaning her husband. He was hurt and dismayed that she put herself above everything else. But then she explained, I put myself first because I want to give the best version of myself to you and our family. Putting oneself first sounds selfish, and it can be if you're eating all the cookies or grabbing the best seat at the table. But for any of us to bring the best version of ourselves to our relationships, we have to pursue our own purpose or spiritual calling. In Hinduism, it's called our Dharma. Dharma is the intersection of passion, expertise and service. Living in your Dharma means that you've connected your natural talents and interests with a need that exists in the universe. Your Dharma doesn't have to be your job. You're fortunate if you can earn a living following your calling, but that isn't always possible. Also, your purpose doesn't have to dominate your life. It might be a hobby, your involvement in church, being a parent, starting a company. It could be volunteering for a dog rescue in your spare time or organizing a local group to help people out of debt or blogging about budget travel. Dharma is not so much about any particular activity. It's more about why you do that activity, whether it's to create something, to connect people, to share what you've learned, to serve others or the world. Whatever it is, your dharma is not a casual interest. It's a passion. It defines you. When you practice it, you think, this is who I am. Your dharma is a journey, not a destination. It can take a long time to find the ways to best extract meaning, joy and fulfillment from your pursuits. As long as a person is pursuing their purpose, they're already living it. The Vedas describe Dharma as one of the four fundamental pursuits that drive us forward in life, shaping our choices and actions. The four pursuits are Dharma, Purpose, Artha, Work and Finance, Karma, Pleasure and Connection, Your Relationships with Others, Moksha, liberation from the material world when you connect with the spirit. Notice that Dharma comes first in this list, which is no accident. The Vedas were intentional about the order, even though these pursuits overlap and intersect with one another throughout our lives. We may not think of purpose as a basic need like financial security and social connection, but it is actually even more essential. Dharma comes before Artha because it guides how you spend your time, money and energy. It gives meaning to the money. The same principle applies to relationships. If you have no sense of purpose, you don't bring thoughtfulness and compassion to your pursuit of pleasure. When you prioritize these four pursuits in the order the Vedas suggest, Dharma clarifies your values and priorities 
to yourself and your partner. You pursue money with a clearer sense of how it should be spent and you pursue love with the desire to create a meaningful life with your partner. Eventually, these three pursuits lead to moksha, where all we do is devoted to a spiritual journey. The Vedas aren't alone in prioritizing purpose. Researchers from the University of California, Los Angeles and the University of North Carolina wanted to see whether hedonia, the kind of self-satisfaction that comes from opulences like fame or riches, along with personal gain and pleasure, looks different in our bodies from eudaimonia, the satisfaction that comes from having a deep sense of purpose and meaning in life. They gave participants a survey asking questions such as how often they feel happy, hedonia, and how often they feel that their life has a sense of direction and meaning, eudaimonia. The researchers found that while those with higher levels of hedonia generally experienced more positive feelings, they had weaker immune profiles, including higher inflammation and other markers that made them more prone to illness. Anthony Burrow, a professor of human development at Cornell University, led another study that showed a strong sense of purpose can even make us immune to the likes or lack of likes we garner on social media. First, he and his research partner had participants fill out a series of questionnaires measuring the degree to which they felt connected to a sense of purpose in life. Then, the participants were told they would be helping to test a new social networking site. First, they had to start building their profiles by posting a selfie. The researchers gave them a camera, then pretended to upload the image to the fictional website. Then, after five minutes, they told the participants how many likes their selfie had gotten compared with other people's photos. Above average, about the same, or below average. Finally, the participants filled out another questionnaire that measured self-esteem. It turned out that those with less of a sense of purpose in life experienced spikes or drops in their self-esteem based on how many likes their selfie got or didn't get, while those with a stronger sense of purpose were relatively unaffected. Their self-esteem held steady. Purpose insulates and protects our self-esteem, and researchers connected high self-esteem to more satisfying relationships. As Burroughs says, we are confronted with the ups and downs of life, but purpose is an active ingredient that helps us stay stable. We bring that stability to one another. It's a foundation on which we can build our life with our partner. There's a story attributed to the Buddha about two acrobats, a master and his assistant. The master climbed to the top of a bamboo pole and told his assistant to follow and stand on his shoulders. We will demonstrate our skill for the crowd and they will give us some money. You will look out for me and I will look out for you and that way we will be safe. The assistant assessed the situation, then shook her head. No, master, she said. 
you will look after yourself and I will look after myself and then we will show our skill and in that way we will make some money and be safe. This is why my client's wife was onto something when she put her purpose first in her list of priorities. A couple's approach to their dharmas should be like that of the assistant acrobat. You go do what you need to do while I go do what I need to do. People think that putting the other person first is a sign of love. We romanticize the idea of making sacrifices and devoting ourselves to another person. And there are beautiful ways to do so. But I've seen people who put their own purpose aside and years down the line feel lost or misled. They regret their choices and resent their partners for not helping them prioritize their purpose. And with reason. I don't condone resentment, but if your partner can bear to watch you give up your purpose, that's not love. Your purpose has to come first for you and your partner's purpose has to come first for them. Then you come together with the positive energy and stability that come from pursuing your purposes. You may wonder why I'm talking about finding your own purpose in a book about relationships. It's something you do in solitude even within a relationship. But just as solitude helps us enter a relationship with self-knowledge, so knowing our purpose helps us sustain and grow a relationship holding on to our sense of purpose and supporting our partner's efforts to do so too. In every relationship, there are actually three relationships. Your relationship with each other, your relationship with your purpose, and your partner's relationship with their purpose. We need to pay attention to all three. This seems hard, but it actually makes life easier. If you want to truly love someone and give them your best self, then you have to be your best self. Much as a depleted parent has a harder time caring for their children, a person who doesn't take care of their own purpose has a hard time supporting their partner in theirs. By looking after ourselves, we prepare to look after others. As marriage and family therapist Kathleen Darlin DeVos told HuffPost, the happiest couples are those who can move past their initial obsession with each other to prioritize their own pursuits and goals. When couples rely solely on each other to meet all of their emotional intimacy and social needs, this merging can stifle healthy personal growth or threaten to slip into codependency. DeVos adds that couples need to maintain their individual identity within the relationship rather than let the relationship define them. When you are both actively pursuing your purpose, your relationship benefits in several ways. Dharma helps you live a passionate, inspired, motivated life, a life you want to share with someone. You also have the pleasure of living alongside someone who is fulfilled. There is great joy in seeing the person you love doing what they love. Furthermore, you're more aware of and sympathetic to 
the struggles they might have along the way. When we aren't pursuing our purposes, troubles arise. Sometimes when you think there's a problem between you and your partner, the root of the dissatisfaction is that one or both partners aren't following their purpose. My client Amy was upset that her partner Marco, a guitarist in an up-and-coming band, was always touring. But when he cut her tour short to spend more time with her, she felt too guilty to enjoy it. She realized that if she herself had a goal to work toward, that would better solve the issue between them. When Amy, who is a painter, started teaching lessons out of a friend's garage, she got excited to put on a group show with their best work. Marco made sure he could leave the tour to attend the opening of the show, and though she was busy during his visit, she felt proud of what she had accomplished and happy to share it with him. Even in a household that looks ideal, where your work lives and home life check all the boxes, if either partner doesn't know their purpose or isn't actively engaged in it, that individual emptiness impacts the relationship. The partner without a purpose might become envious of the other's progress, in which case both partners miss out on the joy, energy and contentment that two people who are fueled by their purpose bring to each other. If one person in a couple feels lost, they might start to feel like their partner, who's comparatively busy and fulfilled, doesn't care about them. The busy partner might worry about their partner not having a life beyond the relationship. They might feel responsible for entertaining their partner and keep them busy. Ultimately, each might resent the other for how they spend their time. In a relationship, we must be careful that neither partner loses track of what they care about, what they value, and what makes them feel true to themselves. Now we'll look first at how you can prioritize your dharma within a relationship, and then at how to help your partner prioritize their dharma. How to Prioritize Your Dharma Sal Khan went to business school, but he didn't think he had the fortitude to be an entrepreneur. Instead, he began a lucrative career at a startup hedge fund. Then, during a visit from family, he discovered that his 12-year-old cousin was struggling with math. Sal offered to tutor her remotely. It was 2004, so the pair used a combination of phone calls and early messenger technology. Within a few months, under his tutelage, Sal's cousin retook her math placement test and went from a remedial class to an advanced class. Soon, other family members, then friends, all over the country began reaching out to Sal for tutoring. Sal started recording his lessons and uploading them to YouTube. Plus, he created custom software for people to practice the lessons. Khan Academy was born. Sal still enjoyed his hedge fund job, but he felt most engaged and excited by the opportunity to share his lessons in the hopes they'd help others. He had found his purpose. If you don't know where to start, I recommend following this progression. 
The Pyramid of Purpose. Learn. Devote time to learning in the area of your purpose. Experiment. Take what you learned and try it out for yourself in order to discover what works for you and what doesn't. Thrive. Perform your purpose, building consistency and steadiness in what you're doing. Struggle. Face the challenges that inevitably come and use them for growth. Win. Celebrate successes, big and small. Learn. Purpose begins with curiosity. We think starting means doing, but it actually begins with learning. Don't skip or avoid the learning phase. The reason we say knowledge is power is that it can help you overcome any fear of the unexpected. Try this. Learn about your purpose. We learn about our purpose by considering and exploring our interests and skills. Passions. Ask yourself questions to identify your passions. If you could be paid to do anything, what would it be? Are there hobbies you loved as a kid but don't do any more? Do you have a hidden talent? Have you seen someone else that you consider to have your dream job? Is there something you'd be doing if you weren't limited by where or how you live? Is there something you used to be good at that you miss? Is there a talent you haven't been able to pursue lately? Strengths. Identify what roles you play at home or at work to identify your strengths. The organizer. Plans birthdays and trips and keeps life on schedule. The organizer is focused on deadlines, results, and the big picture. You're good at directing people. The energizer. Outgoing, enthusiastic, and optimistic. The energizer gets people excited to go do what the organizer planned. The empathizer. Emotionally intelligent, patient, a good listener, and supportive. The empathizer is intuitive about how people are feeling. The analyzer, detail-oriented, systematic, careful, and cautious, the analyzer spots issues that could become problematic. Your purpose is where your passions intersect with your skills. Once you've identified passions and skills, find ways to learn about them. 1. Take a class, read a book, or listen to a podcast in your area of interest. Can you get a certification that will help you develop your talent? 2. Look for groups of people who can inspire you by what they're doing or how they do it. 3. Try out something in the area of your purpose over the weekend. Observe what excites you and deepens your interests. My favorite way to learn is to speak to people who are already doing what I want to do. When a doctor goes to a conference on a specific disease, they connect with other doctors studying that disease. They learn about advances in science. They hear about new treatments or research. The same is true in any area of passion. A mentor will help you form a vision of how you can start to pursue your purpose 
and what your life might look like as you continue to live in your purpose. The mentor can also give you concrete advice as first steps you can take, how you can network and where else you can turn to learn more. Even if you can't find people in your field, just being around others who are actively pursuing their purpose can be extremely inspiring. Ask questions. Be curious. Find people who enjoy talking about how they found their way. If they're not in your community, look to the greats who tell their stories in books, on YouTube, in TED Talks, and on podcasts. Try this. Meet with a mentor. 1. Find potential mentors. Use your existing contacts to connect with people who are experts in your field. Reach out to them on social media. Examine the resources you used to learn, books, TED Talks, podcasts, and follow up to see if those who might have guidance to offer are willing to give you even 10 minutes to ask them questions. 2. Ask questions, take notes on their responses. Start with logistical, tactical, and practical questions. How did you get started? What did you do to improve? What techniques do you use? Do you have partners? And any other questions about how the process works. Don't be afraid to be specific with your questions. When you don't ask specific questions, you don't get specific answers. You can also ask emotional and mental questions that can help give you an idea what you might love about the process and what you may struggle with. What part of the process do you enjoy most? What do you hate about the process? What do you wish you'd known when you started? 3. Process After talking to a mentor, look at your notes. Are there people you should call? Skills you should develop? Opportunities you should pursue? Translate the information you were given into action items and put them into your calendar where relevant. In order to learn, you have to commit time. And in order to commit time, your partner has to be on board. They have to understand the values that make you want to spend your time this way and you want to make sure that they don't feel like you're stealing the time from them or your family if you have one. You do this by working together to decide where the time will come from. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Bridget Schulte was struggling with the conflicting demands of work and parenting. She had no time for herself, including any passion projects she hoped to take on. At one point, desperate to squeeze extra time from her schedule, she took a time-use survey where she recorded what she did all day. The results shocked her, showing that she had an extra 27 hours in her week. The time was largely invisible to Shoti because it was in scraps of 10 minutes here and 20 minutes there, or time confetti as she dubbed it. By jumping around from task to task throughout her days, switching focus among her to-do list and her phone and other distractions, Shalti was shredding her schedule. Once she started batching her tasks and eliminating unnecessary distractions, she found longer blocks of time, 
which she says are essential to learning, coming up with new ideas, and seeing things we might not see otherwise. Ultimately, she found enough time to research and write a book, Overwhelmed, which became a New York Times bestseller. Try this Spare Time Worksheet You can recover lost time by documenting every minute of your day and batching tasks as Shouty did. But this exercise is a simpler approach, where we look at whether the time we're spending is in alignment with our values. Show yourself what you truly value by devoting a consistent proportion of your free time to learning in the area of your purpose. With your partner's help, look at how you currently spend your spare time, both together and apart. This is also a great way for the two of you to get a snapshot of your values and to see if you want to make any other changes to how you spend your free time. First, calculate the total hours you spend every week on the activities I'm about to share with you and any others you'd like to include. Then, calculate how much time you're willing to take away from those activities and reallocate to learning about your purpose. Let's take refueling and pure leisure. The time you currently spend might be four hours a week. Moving forward, you'll spend three hours a week for this activity. Exercise. Let's say you currently spend four hours a week. This you're going to keep the same. Socializing. Currently, it's at eight hours a week. And from now, it will be seven hours a week. Entertainment. Currently, it's at 15 hours a week. From now, it will be 10 hours a week. In this example, the total time spent on activities that are not your purpose is 31 hours. Moving forward, you're going to commit 24 total hours to those activities, leaving you with 7 hours reallocated towards your purpose. Engage your partner in this process. If you don't communicate with your partner about what you're excited to pursue, they may wonder why you don't want to spend time with them. If they sign on to this plan, they'll understand and respect why you're spending your time as you do. Experiment Experimenting is putting your learning into practice to find out what works for you and what doesn't. You conduct many tests of what you've been pursuing. If you took a communication class that told you to look people in the eye when you talk, now you make a concerted effort to follow that advice. If you want to teach, you could try offering a seminar, helping out another teacher, or starting a blog. If you want to sell a craft, you could start posting on Etsy. If you want to offer a service, you could test it out by doing it for free for your friends. Apprenticing, shadowing, interning, and volunteering are all ways of dipping your toe in the waters of something you think might be your purpose. This period of experimentation is meant to take the pressure off. No judgment, no criticism, and no guilt from yourself or your partner. You don't have to be perfect. Mistakes can give you valuable information 
about both your skill level and your field of interest. In this phase, you can invite your partner to come with you as you experiment. A lot of couples may try to take a class together, read the same book, or watch a documentary at the same time. This is great if you share interests, but if they can't come or aren't interested, don't be disheartened. This is your purpose, not theirs. We often pressure our partners to be as enthusiastic as we are about our passion, or we wonder if they're right for us, because when we talk about our passion, they don't have much to add to the conversation. Our partner doesn't have to share our passions. Even if they do, that doesn't guarantee success in a relationship. Remind yourself why you are with them and remember that being alike isn't necessary for a happy relationship. Besides, it's often better for each of you to do your own learning. Then you can move at your own pace and bring what you've found to your partner. This way, your partner is still part of the process and they don't feel mystified or alienated as you proceed. You want your partner to feel loved and connected as you find ways to learn and develop your purpose. Just be sure to let them know when you will be experimenting so that they can decide how they want to schedule the time. Perhaps they'll be experimenting too. Learning and experimenting could be a five-month journey or a five-year journey. Remember, no matter where you are on the pyramid of purpose, you are already in pursuit of purpose. There is no finish line to cross before you're living your purpose. Thrive. Learn and experiment until you hit a level of expertise where you know what you love and what you don't love about your purpose, what works and what doesn't. Then you go for it. Learning doesn't yield results, and the results from experimenting are random. Now you're making those efforts serve you. You take steps to perform your purpose, building consistency and steadiness. This might mean accepting a new job. It might mean launching a small business. It might mean rescuing a dog or volunteering as a teaching assistant. This new effort takes time, but you establish a routine and set measurable goals. You wanted to jump into doing at the start, but your performance will only be as strong as the learning and experimenting you did beforehand. If the results aren't satisfactory, then you go back to learning and experimenting. If nobody is visiting your Etsy shop, you make efforts to learn how to market it. If you feel like you could be a better teaching assistant, ask the lead teacher to mentor you. When you can produce measurable, replicable results and you start to get noticed, it builds confidence and motivates you to keep pushing forward. In order to thrive, you have to ramp up your efforts and pursuing your purpose may start to consume more of your time and energy. It's vital that you share what you're doing and what you need from your partner in this phase. Remember, you are taking care of your own needs so you can give to the people you love. Struggle I know what you're thinking. Is struggle really necessary? I hate to break it to you, 
but there is bound to be some struggle at all the levels of the pyramid. You may learn that following a certain path is prohibitively expensive or that nobody is responding to the way you chose to share your passion or that you need to work on your skills far longer and harder than you anticipated. You might encounter unexpected hiccups. You might fail and have to start all over again. We can't avoid struggle, but the deeper we understand it, the more we can use it to grow. When you struggle, explain to your partner what you're going through. If someone knows why you're tired, distracted or upset, they'll be better able to support you in the ways we talked about in Rule 4. Be careful not to label every challenge as struggle. There's always something to struggle over, but don't allow it to become your whole reality. When you keep a balanced view of struggle, you can learn and grow through it without letting it get the best of you. When you are going through a challenging phase, it's also important to remind your partner that it's not their fault. You can be open about what you need, but clarify to your partner that this is your burden, not theirs. In fact, if you're stuck and uninspired regarding your own purpose, it might be an ideal opportunity to direct your free time and energy toward your partner's pursuits. Later in this rule, I'll tell you how. This clear-eyed approach allows you to discover new ways to nurture your own independent purpose. You might help your partner build their online presence and realize that your calling is to be an online marketer. Or you might get involved in the design end of a partner's work and decide to study graphic design. Just remember, nobody is satisfied through another person's dharma. If one pretends to share the other's dharma, they won't be able to use their true gifts. Dreams don't have to be big. They just have to be yours. Win Lewis Hamilton is Formula One Racing's winningest driver with 103 wins and 182 podium finishes between 2007 and 2021. Each Formula One race lasts roughly two hours and there are 23 races per season. That means that over 15 years, he spent about 683 hours racing. That doesn't count qualifying or practice time. To be a top driver in season, Hamilton also does roughly 5 to 6 hours of physical training per day. Over 15 years, that's about 13,300 hours spent working out. Now, let's say that when Hamilton wins a race, he spends about 10 minutes on the podium. That means that over 15 years, for all those hours spent training and racing, not even including practice, Hamilton spent about 0.1% of his time in the winner's spotlight. Don't trust my math? If you must know, I base this on 41,000 minutes racing, plus 800,000 minutes training, plus 1,030 minutes on the podium. Standing on the top of the podium is a rare pleasure. You're at the peak and you're being recognized for it. 
This is the level we all want to live in. We want to sit on top of the mountain, having done all the hard work and be acknowledged and recognized for what we've achieved. We want to just stay there. The most important thing to remember about winning is that it's a byproduct of the first four levels. You only get to win if you've gone through all four of the other levels first. So if you live for the award show, the followers and the fame, you're going to be disappointed to discover that winning is rare and only accounts for a tiny fraction of the time you spend in your purpose. You have to love the lower parts. Life is not spent at the pinnacle. Those mountaintop events are only a tenth of one percent of the experience. Winners are still learning, experimenting, performing and struggling. It's all part of the journey and it's all valuable. Try this. Set goals together. Before you sit down with your partner to do this exercise, think about how you plan to present it. If you say to your partner, Jay Shetty said we should answer these questions about our purpose every year, let's do it now, you probably won't get great results. Same goes if you lay it on them like an evangelical preacher. Don't rush to your partner to implement a new frequency or form of communication. First, digest these ideas on your own. Start quietly supporting your partner's purpose rather than announcing your plans to do so. Observe the effect it has on you, your partner, and your relationship. Share what you notice with your partner in a communication style that you know works for them. Once a year, set aside time to talk to your partner about your purpose and goals. You have to maintain your goals the same way you maintain a home. Every year you clean the gutters, change the batteries and the smoke alarms and take care of repairs. In a relationship, you check in on your purpose and how you both feel you're fulfilling it. You can have a dream together and a personal dream. Your goal might be to learn to paint, while your partner's goal might be to learn web design. Your goal together might be to learn to dance. What are you trying to achieve? Are you working to acquire a skill that serves your purpose? Are you looking for a job that is closer to your purpose? Are you trying to find more time for your purpose? What do you want from your partner? How can they help you fulfill your purpose? Do you need emotional support? Do you want them to help you fulfill other responsibilities so you have more time for their purpose? What does your partner want from you? Do you believe in their purpose? What ways can you think of to help them pursue it? When you maintain your home, there are also issues you have to address more frequently than once a year. You pay the bills monthly, change a light bulb when it goes out, or fix a leak. If a challenge comes up for you or your partner, make sure you discuss it together. Help your partner prioritize their purpose. Helping each other fulfill your purposes is so central to the success of a relationship 
that in the traditional Vedic wedding ceremony, it's the final vow. Together, we will persevere in the path of Dharma, righteousness, through this vehicle of householder life. This doesn't mean you take over their Dharma, it means you make room for it. Often in a household, it feels like there is only room for one partner's purpose. Studies show that men's salaries go up after they have children, while women's salaries go down. An article in the New York Times says that even when you control for hours, salaries, and other factors, the disparity is not because mothers actually become less productive employees and fathers work harder when they become parents, but because employers expect them to. In reality, as the Times reports, 71% of mothers with children at home work according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and women are the sole or primary breadwinner in 40% of households with children, according to data from the Pew Research Center. Employer bias is the only reason for the discrepancy. It's a problem, but all the more reason to make sure that if anyone in your relationship is a woman, she doesn't leave her purpose behind. The process of climbing the pyramid of purpose illuminates how we can help our partners. We see them on a parallel climb and use the lessons we're learning to give us patience and ideas for them. Help them learn. People often don't know where to begin. Watch for when they light up, when they spring to life in a conversation. Observe what brings them joy and what their strengths are. Then use what you see to encourage and affirm them. These insights help your partner accelerate their learning and experimenting. Remember to be a good guru. Don't be pushy or get mad at them if they don't follow your advice. They have to come to it in their own time and at their own pace. You can't force them. You can only be there for them as they figure it out. You aren't trying to get them to the next step in your journey, but to the next step in their journey. If your partner has interests but hasn't shaped them into a purpose, encourage them to explore without judging their path. We aren't born knowing our purpose or ready to pursue it. Help your partner to follow up on something they're curious about. You can book a trip to a museum or find books or TED Talks to help them explore what they're especially curious about. Take a look at your commitments and priorities and make sure your partner has the freedom to pursue their curiosity instead of, for example, expecting that they'll spend their spare time with you. When I met Radhi, it was clear that she loved food and I encouraged her to explore that interest wherever it might lead her. People always told her, you should open a restaurant. But I didn't impose my goals on her. I tried to support her growth by simply telling her to devote time toward learning and experimenting. I felt glad for us as a couple and for her alone to make whatever sacrifices it might take for her to pursue her interests. When we first arrived in New York, she started as an apprentice under an Ayurvedic chef. She went from there to teaching yoga, 
to getting her Ayurvedic qualification, to helping a restaurant build its menu. I didn't pressure her to choose a career goal or ask when her quest would end. When our partner is looking for their purpose, we support from the sidelines. We provide advice when asked, but let them make their own decisions. We don't accuse them of being unproductive. We praise them when they make progress. Don't say, what's taking so long? Instead say, how can I help you? Don't say, you need to make a decision now. Instead try, let's set a deadline together that feels realistic for our home and life. Don't say, look at person X, they're doing so well. Instead ask, have you thought about who inspires you and might be a good mentor? While your partner is learning, don't try to be their mentor. A mentor is skilled in the area where one wants to learn. The mentor has applicable experience and knowledge to guide them to ways they can thrive in their purpose, along with the willingness to help. Your partner is your partner in love. You are each other's guru, learning about yourselves and each other. But you don't have to be mentors or business partners. Instead, help them think of ways to connect with mentors and come up with questions to ask when they have a chance. Help them experiment. A friend of mine was interested in doing stand-up comedy. He was just getting started and there was no way a club would have booked him at that stage in his career. So one night, his wife transformed their small urban garden into a stand-up club. She put out folding chairs for the guests, strung lights between the trees, and served popcorn. He came out and did a stand-up set for 10 friends. This was a fun and inspired way for my friend's wife to support her partner's experimentation. You can help your partner by creating opportunities for them to practice their passion and strengths. Maybe you have a friend in a related industry whom they can shadow. Maybe you have a connection who could help them develop their skills. Be an audience, help gather an audience, or help them with the aspects that are not within their skill set. Give them time and space. Inspired as Sal Khan was when he launched Khan Academy, he had bills to pay. His wife was just completing medical school and they had escalating rent and a growing family. It seemed ridiculous to even consider quitting his safe hedge fund job to go all in on a non-profit. But a friend kept calling to tell him that his purpose was not to be a hedge fund investor but to help the world the way he'd helped his cousin. When Sal approached his wife about the idea, she was supportive, but concerned about their financial situation. Eventually, she recognized that Sal was having trouble focusing on anything other than the academy. They decided to dig into the money they were saving for a down payment on a house and Sal quit his job. It was incredibly stressful, Sal says. I was waking up in the middle of the night in cold sweats. Finally, an investor came through. It was a major turning point for Sal and today Khan Academy is one of the largest online learning platforms in the world.
This is an extreme example and I'm not recommending that anyone necessarily quit their day job. This would still be a success story if Sal had stayed at the hedge fund while tutoring or left it to found a company with moderate success. The point is that his wife supported him when he took a calculated risk. Sometimes it's hard to watch your partner direct their time and passion elsewhere. You may feel that your partner is fulfilled by their purpose, not you. I think I should be more important than my partner's purpose is the complaint I hear most often about purpose in a relationship. We want more of the attention our partner is giving to their purpose. But if someone gives us their time because we demand it, we don't get the best of them. Instead of pulling them away from their purpose, you can join them in their journey, whether they are learning and experimenting or putting their purpose into action. Also, remember that you won't feel competitive or envious of the time they spend on their purpose if you're satisfied in your own. As Albert Einstein said, if you want to live a happy life, tie it to a goal not to people or things. Don't stop them, limit them, or make them feel bad about pursuing their purpose. Be patient when they struggle. We might grow frustrated when our partner struggles with their dharma, particularly if we don't agree with their choices and strategies along the way. If they want to quit or constantly change their approach, or plunge recklessly forward, we have to be a good guru. When they share an idea with us that we don't like, we listen. We take time to feel gratitude for their honesty. We don't have to like it or accept it or think it makes them the world's best strategist. But we allow them to share. We pay attention. We observe carefully. We seek to understand instead of projecting our own desires and limitations onto them. If our partner doesn't think we'll understand, they won't open up or tell us the truth. Sometimes we are brusquer and more judgmental with our partners than anyone else in our lives. Treat your partner with at least the same respect you would give a friend or colleague and offer them mindful responses that help them grow their purpose. Helping your partner find their way isn't always easy. Sometimes it creates new tensions in the relationship. They might feel pitied or pressured, but those new tensions are better than the old ones. Because being depressed and confused and not knowing your dharma is worse than knowing it and struggling to make it work. When they don't make the progress that we think they should, we might try to manage or control them. We become frustrated when they don't take that meeting we set up for them or they don't attend an event where they might build their network. Sometimes we're triggered because their behavior reminds us of something we worry about in our own life. We might fear that we aren't succeeding in our career or purpose and we're projecting our own fear onto our partner. The first step we should take is to check our own purpose. Are we fully engaged in it? Do we feel momentum? Focusing on it might relieve the worries 
you have about your partner. But other concerns might be coming into play. We might be going through the motions of giving our partner space while feeling scared that they're not going to deliver. Or we might be worried when we look at how they're doing in comparison to other people. All these triggers compel us to criticize and judge which interferes with our partner's ability to grow. You don't have to hide your concern. In fact, you should share it. But share it with support and love without imposing your standards or expectations on them. They may not be interested in or motivated enough to take action in this moment and that's okay. Two of the ways we tend to share our concern are problematic for different reasons. Sometimes we try to force our partner forward. If your partner is miserable and wants to quit their job, you might freak out and say, you can't do that. You know perfectly well that we can't afford it. When we do this, we're using fear and guilt to motivate them. Or we might swing in the opposite direction, saying what we think is the right thing to say without really meaning it. In this case, we sometimes use hyper-motivational language like, you're a superstar, you can do anything you want, you can make this happen tomorrow. But if you don't believe this, it rings false. Force is pressure. It blocks the space your partner might use to tell you that they want to move forward but aren't sure how. They can't be vulnerable and talk honestly with you. Contrived motivation expands the space artificially. Your partner might quit their job and stop working for a year. And when you ask why, they'll say, well, you said I could do whatever I want. Both of these methods, force and false motivation, interfere with your partner's ability to address the situation with you realistically. A gentle positive nudge is much more powerful than a fear-based argument or motivational push. A nudge says, I appreciate that you're trying your best. Here's something else you can try. This nudge comes more naturally when you remove judgment and criticism from the dialogue because now there is space for open, honest, vulnerable conversation. In this space, make sure your partner knows you're aware of what they're going through. Be patient with them. Recognize and appreciate their worthy efforts, no matter what the results have been. The tone of this conversation should be supportive. Remind them that they can handle challenges and that you are there to solve problems with them. You're doing this together. In the example of the partner who wants to quit their job, you can discuss in practical terms how both of your lives would be affected by this decision. Where will you need each other's help? How much time will you give to this experiment? How will responsibilities shift? How can you help carry their load to give them time and space to figure out what's next? You can brainstorm ideas for how to support each other. If they're going to be around the house more now, maybe they can handle cooking dinner, giving you more time to get your work done. The resolution of this conversation should be a set of commitments and agreements. You've assessed how the household and financial responsibilities will change. You've outlined any shifts you'll have to make in how you spend your time and money. 
Once you've hashed out the details, put a timeline on this decision. If your partner is quitting their job to reassess their purpose, how long will they take before they start looking for work? If you decide to give them three months, this doesn't mean they have to have everything figured out by then, but that's when you'll revisit the plan and decide what's next. Celebrate the small wins. If your partner went to the gym every day for three months, you wouldn't say much. But if they didn't go to the gym for that length of time, you'd point it out. That's generally how we operate. We complain when people are late, but we never thank them for being on time. When someone lands a job, everyone congratulates them. But when someone does the job, nobody congratulates them. When someone quits a job, few people see that as a step toward fulfilling one's purpose, but it often is. Instead of celebrating the obvious wins, watch your partner closely for efforts and successes that nobody else is positioned to notice. Recognizing them helps fuel your partner's drive and satisfaction. Show mindful love. When they share an idea that you don't like, encourage them to test it out on a focus group, run it past a mentor, or get real feedback from real people. When they complain about getting distracted, ask if they want to be accountable to you. You could let them know when they seem distracted or refuse to watch TV with them until they check something off their list. Note, I didn't say you should accuse them of getting distracted. It has to come from them. When they give up, give them time and space to mourn a setback and continue to share things you think might inspire them. Help them notice how far they've come so they can decide if they want to return to their efforts. When they want to take a financial risk, set up a meeting with your accountant or a financially savvy friend to have realistic conversations about the consequences of the risk and how it might affect both of you. When they let other responsibilities slide, you know things shift when people focus on their purpose. Revisit and reset commitments around the home so everyone's clear on how it will work in this phase and do so regularly. Two purposes collide. When children enter the picture, or for any reason you're trying to support and manage a busy household, where both partners are trying to pursue their purposes, it can be hard to negotiate time. There's no right option or perfect balance of time spent on purpose, with family and running a household. But the more deliberate and communicative we are about our strategy, the more satisfied we'll be. Following are four different strategies for how to manage two purposes. You can set your purposes aside temporarily to prioritize earning and spending time with the family while your children are young and the household has financial pressures. You can prioritize one person's purpose. You can take turns prioritizing your purposes. Or you can go all in on both partners' purposes. Strategy 1. Pursue your purposes after hours. Often our purpose doesn't earn money or support the household. 
as a couple, we need financial stability. And if you can't fulfill your purpose through your job, then you won't be able to give it much time. This is actually where most people start, and it's a healthy place to be. Don't put the burden of financial bills on your developing passion. It doesn't need to carry the weight. Use mornings and evenings to build your passion. Remember something that starts as a pastime can become part-time, and something part-time can become full-time. Starting out slowly and carefully gives you time to see how serious you are about your passion, exploring your options, and acquiring skills. Without sacrificing stability, you can put care and effort toward making your purpose central to your life and finding fulfillment through it. Strategy 2. Give one person's purpose priority. It's easy to say both partners should prioritize their purposes, but different people's purposes often run on different timelines. Choose this scenario when one person's purpose creates immediate and overwhelming demands on their time and energy, but make sure you mutually decide that their efforts will take precedence while the other partner manages the household. Often this happens when one person's purpose is also financially supporting the household. Even so, don't go all in on one person's purpose without discussing the plan explicitly. Sometimes one partner will demand that the other sacrifice their dharma. If the demanding partner earns more money, this might even seem like a reasonable position. They're supporting the household, so they think their purpose is more important. They may expect the other partner to pick up the slack at home and hope or believe that to be a fulfilling purpose for them. But even if they are more financially successful or further along in their career path, their purpose is not more important, period. Just because you decide to spend a holiday with one partner's family doesn't mean you love that family more. Time is limited and something has to give. While we give one person's purpose priority in terms of time, we must recognize the sacrifice of putting the other partner's purpose on hold. If you choose to prioritize one person's dharma, you must discuss all the pros and cons and agree that this is the best for the household. Set terms that the partner who is making a sacrifice feels comfortable with, such as how long this will go on and how you will check in with each other to make sure that frustration and resentment don't set in. If your purpose gets priority and your partner takes on a role that isn't their purpose, treat that role with the same respect and accommodation as you would their purpose. When you're living your purpose, you may find yourself busy and less able to support your partner. But remember, you're the one whose purpose is fulfilling you. Purpose comes first, but this doesn't mean you should forget what comes next. You need to figure out how to follow your purpose without neglecting other parts of your life. You should be happy to be there for your partner. Recognize that they might not be as satisfied as you are and compensate. Check in often. Revisit the arrangement you've made. Give them a chance to change their mind and be supportive 
when the time comes for them to step into their purpose. If your purpose is taking precedence, you may want your partner to be as enthusiastic about it as you are. The desire for enthusiasm might be insecurity in disguise. When we're insecure, we want everyone to validate our choices and tastes. Meanwhile, if you're the one who put your purpose aside, it's normal to have a number of emotions arise. You might feel competitive with or envious of your partner. You might feel frustrated about your own purpose. You might feel self-doubt. These feelings are normal and they are tempered by knowing your own purpose. If you don't have time for it right now, look for ways to stay connected to it and keep your passion for it alive. You can turn to all the ways we talk about in this chapter through books, classes, finding it while supporting your partner, finding it in the job you have to have right now. If you become impatient and think there might be a way to restructure the household, reopen the dialogue with your partner. If you feel neglected, first diagnose why your partner seems to be focused on their purpose to the exclusion of the family. Are they immersed in their work? If you understand them and cherish their purpose, then you will see their commitment to it as a positive attribute. You will feel a sense of security knowing that they're focused on something deeply meaningful to them. Is it a personality trait or a choice rather than a necessity? Instead of demanding that they spend more time with you, ask, are you okay? Is there anything you're dealing with? We need to meet them with compassion rather than criticism or complaint. If your partner is unable to spend time with the family because they are wholly focused on making money to support the household, then together you can discuss whether their family actually wants or needs that level of income or whether the family would rather have their presence instead. It's all a question of energy or time. If the busier partner can carve time out of their schedule, work together to create meaningful experiences for the whole family. If they don't have time, they can still give energy by being present, loving and kind when you're together. Chasing a pursuit can be tiring. If they don't have energy for too many activities, you can make staying home together beautiful. Take the time to set the table nicely and light candles at dinner, even if you're eating takeout. Set up a spa day where the family trades massages and other treatments. Create a new holiday or tradition that you'll celebrate every year on the same randomly chosen day. Play a new board game. Google a list of conversation topics. There are also sets of cards that suggest interesting discussions and have the whole family participate. If your partner isn't willing to do either, you need to communicate about it. If, on the other hand, your partner is overly busy with their purpose, out of an underlying desire to escape the family, nothing will be fixed by forcing them to be with the family. If you can't come to an agreement, use some of the techniques in the following chapter to work through your conflict. Sometimes partners default to this option because their purposes are on different timelines. When one partner hasn't figured out their purpose, they're often inclined 
to build their life around the one who has. My clients, Graham and Susanna, have been together for 20 years. When he launched a real estate business, she gave up her dream of running a yoga studio and helped him develop the business. He achieved his purpose, the firm is extremely successful, and she continued to work there even after he could afford to hire a replacement. From the outside, their marriage and work together looked like a brilliant partnership. But for 15 years, Susanna had been quietly mourning her unfulfilled dream of a yoga studio, even though she had never taken steps to pursue it. Serving Graham wasn't Susanna's purpose, nor was growing his company. Most of the time when we end up working on someone else's purpose, it's because we don't know what ours is or we don't know where to start. But it's never too late. Susanna's time wasn't wasted. At any point, she could tap into the skills she had acquired to pursue her own calling, whether it was that yoga studio or something new. When Graham finally understood how frustrated Susanna was, he encouraged her to open the yoga studio she'd always wanted. He offered to take a year off work to help her get it off the ground. But when she allowed herself to consider what she really wanted to do, she realized that there was a piece of the real estate business she'd fallen in love with. She decided to use the connections and skills she'd acquired to stage houses, preparing them with furniture and art to present them for sale. She worked with the selling agents she already knew and her business took off quickly. Try this. Adjust a dharma imbalance. When your partner's dharma is taking up all the space in a relationship, you follow a similar process to the one I outlined for when your partner is struggling. Attend to your own purpose. Open conversation without judgment or criticism. Make commitments and agreements and establish a timeline for revisiting the plan. 1. Focus on your own purpose. When you're frustrated with your partner's purpose, this is always the first action you should take. This is how you ensure that you aren't making your partner your purpose. 2. Communicate. Discuss why you aren't finding time for each other. You should not be competing with your partner's purpose for their time. You want to make room for their purpose, but what you can ask of them is their presence. 3. Make commitments and agreements. Together, decide what time each of you will devote to your purpose and when it will be family time. Set boundaries and commit to them. 4. Define couple or family activities that make that time more valuable. For example, instead of watching TV together, find activities that are more interactive. On weekends, this could be something physically active, like a hike or another sport that both of you enjoy. It could be entertaining friends or family or volunteering. On weeknights, when time is at a premium, you could play games, cook together, or listen to or watch something that falls into the learning category of one of your purposes and discuss it together. If you have the energy, you could plan more activities, like listening to music or a lecture together, 
or find a new activity that you've never tried before. 5. Establish a timeline for the new plan you put in place. When would you like to touch base again to make sure you're honoring your agreements or to see if you need to make tweaks? Strategy 3. Take turns prioritizing your purposes. If neither of you is willing to sacrifice your purpose, but you can't afford the time or money to pursue both purposes full-time, one person can take a certain amount of time to focus on theirs, while the other one keeps the bills paid and or manages the household. Then, after the term is up, the partners switch roles. In this scenario, if either or both of your purposes is your career, those careers might suffer. You might have to live more simply, but it will likely be worth whatever comforts you have to give up. Just make sure you carve out clear timelines and boundaries and commitments. Keith and Andrea each had a passion. Andrea wanted to become a naturopath and Keith a competitive triathlete and each supported the other's dream. Yet when they tried to pursue their passions simultaneously, they found they couldn't balance the time and commitment required to be successful in their chosen careers with the demands of parenting while also getting enough sleep and making enough money to keep their household running. So, they came up with a compromise. They would take turns. First, Andrea spent three years going through all of the intensive schooling required to complete her training. During this time, Keith became a teacher in the suburban Ohio town. While the pay wasn't great, it got rid of their massive monthly health insurance payment and allowed him to be home with the kids after school and on weekends. Andrea still worked reduced hours, so he wasn't paying the bills on his own. She was mostly able to do her schooling on evenings and weekends. Once Andrea set up her business, and had built up a steady clientele, it was Keith's turn. He kept his job, but Andrea took over with the kids, and he dedicated his non-work time primarily to training. Now that each is established in their career, they take many turns. For example, one year, Keith dialed down his training over the winter months so that Andrea could finish a continuing education course. Once his competitive season ramped up again, Keith was able to dedicate extra time and financial resources to training and race-related travel. Strategy 4. Go all in on both people's purposes. If both people are somewhat experienced and established, then you can take the opportunity to simultaneously pursue your purposes full-time. Income is an important consideration here. We must have stability to have a good relationship. Jennifer Petriglieri, who studies dual-income couples, says that in most of the press that you see about dual-career couples, it's presented as a zero-sum game. This means that one person gets more and the other person gets less. And while some couples do have this tit-for-tat mindset, successful couples have a mindset that is, rather than thinking about it as me versus you, 
about a conceptualization of we as the most important piece of the puzzle. According to Petroglieri, couples who invest themselves in each other then become invested in each other's successes and failures. The desire to see each other succeed then comes more naturally and the compromises you have to make won't breed resentment. Going all in on both people's purposes is easy in one sense. Both people are putting their purpose first, both are fulfilled and both are therefore well positioned to give the other their best self, satisfied and energized. But in this plan, as with the others, you'll have to make sacrifices. You'll have less time together, so you'll have to make your time meaningful. It's important to keep communicating, not about how busy each of you is, but how much you care about what you're doing. Each of you seeing your partner being purposeful will give you respect for each other. Try this. Do a time trade. You and your partner can ease the stress of two busy lives by giving each other the gift of time. Here are some different ways to trade time commitments with your partner. Take over a responsibility that's usually your partner's for a period of time or permanently. Create an activity that gets yourself and everyone else out of their way. Cancel evening plans for a whole weekend and both focus on the partner whose purpose needs more time. Pick a holiday and make it all about the partner who needs time. Watching your partner grow and being part of that journey is deeply fulfilling and exciting, as is your own growth. It's not always smooth, but it's a beautiful journey. When you're a part of each other's growth, you don't grow apart from each other. You can celebrate the successes together and be there together for disappointments. Of course, with two people prioritizing their own needs, conflict is inevitable. Our next rule will help us find the value in disagreement and how we can bring purpose to our conflicts.